This is sort of a ceremonial meeting of the commission as two of our commissioners are sick, one's out of the country, and um, we do have Scott Ellsworth in the back row who's a commissioner. Uh, hi, Scott. Um, so we'll get right, right to the program. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, the director of the Department of Building Inspection, Tom Huey, who will welcome you all. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, first of all, uh, I would like to say thank you, Annie, you, your quick introduction, brief. Uh, also, uh, I would like to um, say, you know, uh, there are a few of the building officials here, and also uh, we would like to welcome the uh, California Access uh, Commission, you know, uh, to panel member come over in the front here. Uh, and also, you know, it's uh, proud to, you know, to come in to welcome them uh, because the accessibility is the one of my top priority in our department to make sure the public to comply. And also, I would like to extend my, you know, uh, appreciation to the uh, Vice Chair and also, you know, Steve Lonely. Uh, and then uh, he spent extensive time and also he's the chair to do the checklist, you know, for, you know, to, to make it public, to make sure, you know, people uh, can comply and then to understand the checklist itself. Um, also our, you know, SS appeal panel also, you know, extensive time to, you know, work it out to the public to make sure they all, uh, you know, to comply to this top requirement. And also, I want to, you know, quickly appreciate uh, former supervisor Tom Amiano and uh, the, you know, former uh, Congress you know, for the state. Uh, he, you know, spent lots of time to create this, uh, you know, commission, you know, to serve the public. And also I want to say, you know, um, our supervisor, Katie Tang, uh, she also spent, you know, some time to improve on the ordinance regarding all the assess uh, you know, accessibility requirements. Uh, both of them will join us later on this afternoon. Uh, also, we are doing a little bit early celebration on the 25th anniversary for the uh, SS, uh, uh, you know, uh, commission, you know, for, for the state. Uh, we are happy. 25 years is a long time. Like a young man still have lots of energy. We will going to move forward, you know, make people understand, especially San Francisco is a tough city, you know, lots of challenge because the physical condition. Uh, we are not trying to penalize the owner or anything. We just want to encourage them. We, we want them to work out to help the, you know, the public to, you know, to make sure they comply to the law. And uh, further, uh, you know, to spend too much time to talk about it, I would like to introduce Stephen Lonnie to come up and then to uh, start the program. Thank you.
Well, thank you very much for that uh, introduction, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I appreciate uh, San Francisco inviting us to, to join today. My name is uh, Steve Dolum. I'm commissioner with the CCDA and uh, presently serving as uh, vice chair to the commission. I think I also served, and uh, the purpose of this part of our discussion is I served as the chair for our subcommittee on uh, the accessibility checklist project. And to give you a little history, the uh, accessibility checklist subcommittee was formed in July of 2014. The uh, purpose was in response to what the legislature tasked in uh, Senate Bill 1608, which became Government Code 8299.06. And several years before July of 2014, we, uh, this task was to create a um, checklist, a master checklist for disability access compliance that may be used by the building inspectors and this was the mission as defined by our California legislature in preparing that law. The uh, checklist committee was formed with 11 members in, and then the CCDA executive director. The 11 committee members that made up our checklist committee came from a very diverse background. We had, um, we had five uh, members of the AIA we had six registered architects. We had four certified access specialist institute members that are active practitioners as CASPs. We had three members of CALBO, uh, a Northern California Building Officials Organization. We had three members from the Division of State Architect who um, were involved specifically in accessibility matters within the organization. We had three current building officials. We had two commissioners who also were serving on the CCDA itself. We had one member from the California Building Standards Commission office. We also had another member from the Housing and Community Development Group, and we had one general contractor. So you add up all those things, it was a lot more than 11 people because these people often shared diverse backgrounds and multiple uh, experiences, so we counted each and every one of those. We initially commenced as a checklist committee by gathering samples of previous checklists that were already published and commercially available. Such included the San Francisco Department of Public Works quick sheets developed by the Office of the uh, Disability Access Coordinator. It included a restaurant accessibility field guide prepared by uh, Designing Accessible Communities and several other uh, CASP accessibility specialists that work with them. We also saw examples from bifold and trifold products that were published by a local uh, bookstore. We had the Department of General Services checklist that was in use for state leased facilities. We looked at a Calbo sample checklist we looked at various private party checklists, such as Evan Terry Associates, Codemasters, uh, 
And then lastly, to kind of uh, enlighten us out of our little specialty, we looked at a restaurant association food preparation checklist because of their style and their wide uh, diverse usage, we thought that might be a good prompting too. We concluded after looking at all of these as a committee that the uh, shorter, tickler style checklist was going to be the most important, easily carried guide that could be taken on the job site by building inspectors as opposed to a thicker compendium that was like buying the code. So what was the point? All building inspectors were trained with the code. They have it available to them if they need it. But oftentimes a quick tickler is, is very important to all of us when we're walking in the field. So as a committee, we concluded that would be the most easily portable and easily assimilated uh, product. It would be short, easy to carry. It could be put in a three-ring binder or uh, uh, carried about. Our second task was uh, related to how do we develop this checklist in a manner that isn't a repetition of other documents that are out in the field. And we concluded that today probably one of the hardest shortcomings is a major construction project is finished and the building official signs up for, or si shows up for the final inspection. And at that point, it's really painful to hear, oh my gosh, this tile floor needs to be changed because the toilet's in the wrong position. We need to move it over three more inches. So we, we reflected on that and concluded that uh, many of the uh, agencies are already at the site multiple times. So we did a quick survey and we found out that Sacramento County um, had eight stages of inspections already where the inspectors were on the site, but only one time did they look for accessibility at the end. We looked at um, the DSA inspection card has 52 sign-offs, and of those 52 sign-offs, they were at numerous stages, depending on the complexity of the project. There were only three times out of those 52 that anybody checked accessibility. Uh, we concluded, uh, sampling many others from private city or smaller cities to other agencies like fire agencies, that it's probably not the best use of everybody's time to just check it once or twice at the end. Maybe we should integrate this into a process where we inspect it over time. And that way we can uh, incorporate any shortcomings with easy corrections. If the rough-in plumbing for the toilet's in the wrong position, we can catch that in plumbing rough-in rather than after all of the finishes are set and the concrete is poured. Uh, I'm sorry, I said that backwards. Concrete is poured, finishes are set, and the toilet on top. That's, you know, the painful time. So we developed our thought process that this tickler form of checklist would have phases that integrated with what goes on in the natural construction project and the natural times that building officials are already on site. So we concluded there are good opportunities at for example, for site walkways and surfaces at the rough grading stage or the formwork stage before your foundations are poured or before your walkways and ramps are poured. We concluded there were other opportunities during rough framing. Do we have the necessary clearances for the right size doors? 
also at rough plumbing, at rough electrical. Um, lastly, during the uh, final stages, many things happen before the last sign-off, such as elevators get checked, restrooms get checked, other features like cabinets and counters, drinking fountains, reach ranges, alarms, and signage. All of those have different opportunities, multiple opportunities, to integrate any necessary corrective step. So we geared our checklist highlighting those natural progressions and I'm happy to show it and hold it up and show you the fold-out formats, but uh, what we have is a topic at rough grade. Here is where you may look. At a rough electrical, you may be over here. And you can see the progression of lists does get bigger and longer, but it gives us an opportunity to have it parking, for example, and your code sections, what you would look at at each of these stages. So I'm very happy to show this and share it. We've posted it in numerous locations. We have it available in a um, uh, uh, trifold. We have it on the CCDA website, which we can pull up and illustrate uh, here. I don't know how the technical side works, but if we'd be, there you go. We have it available in a, a finished document stage. Do we also have it in Word? And it's also available as a moldable document for each agency as a Word document, if we so choose. So this is a tool. It's a working tool. And we just first welcome the usage, the molding, because this is our first crack. And we're here to reflect what works. If there are suggestions, or for example, a situation in San Francisco may be different than a situation in a smaller municipality, this may be crafted by each agency for its usage. It's not meant to be a static document. We will attempt to keep it up to date for each of the code cycles, for example, in the 2013 CBC that was issued uh, January 1st of 14 was that effective date. We also have the uh, addendum, uh, I'm sorry, is that the right term, but the July 1st changes that were issued in 2015. So we again go back, we will augment any code changes or any other issues in this so that we keep this as a living and breathing document. Again, we're very proud of the efforts that went into this and the kinds of surveys and feedback and data. We, we had help along the way from Calbo in running surveys with its membership. We had help with Building Standards Commission uh, surveying their membership. We had input from a lot of organizations and um, there is much time and energy that went into this. There's a lot of pats on the back that are due, and it's uh, my point in the meeting to turn over to one of my other commissioners, Betty Wilson and Chris Downey, to help recognize all the efforts and to further this meeting. So uh, thank you very much.
Now that's, this is an example of accessibility because here we are um, being that I'm using a wheelchair today and uh, my fellow commissioner Chris Downey is walking with his cane and we're now going to provide you with, with uh, some information that you may not have known. Many of our commissioners really did take great part in developing this checklist. And it's really a unique document. It's one that I consider as a, a living document. As we get new information, we plan to keep it updated. And at this time, I really would like very much uh, if our uh, vice chair would bring to the, uh, I guess bring up to our uh, dais here, or bring up to me or whatever, I want to recognize the members of the committee, of the checklist committee, who really developed many long hours to making this a reality. And I want you to know that we as commissioners are committed to working on universal or actually access for all. We want everyone to have an opportunity to get in, to be involved in, the, in, the, in community life, as well as in take part in the government uh, process take part in all of the things that are, are that are uh, allowed us as American citizens and those who are tourists who come from other countries. We're very pleased to say that. So uh, Chris has been Chris Downey, Commissioner Chris Downey has been the chair of this whole undertaking, and I would like to uh, of the Education and Outreach Committee. This, we're part. We're, we're a standing committee of the commission, and it's our charge also to try to get the word out all over the state as well as the country, anywhere else. Anyone who's going to listen, we need to have that word uh, uh, statewide. So this is why our checklist committee is one very good checklist uh, document is one very good start. So, Commissioner Downey, if you have more to add, go right ahead. Uh, Thank you, Betty. Uh, Commissioner Wilson, it's a pleasure to be here and to be a part of this uh, event, and, and especially it's a, it's exciting to be part of an effort to really improve the process for uh, for getting things built properly in the in the environment to get catch things at the appropriate times so that uh, when it's when it's uh, finally completed that that things have been caught along the way in the most efficient manner possible to everyone's benefit the business owner uh, the client. Um, the department and and the people at large. So it's an exciting day, and, and it's a pleasure to be part of this. And thanks to the work of the uh, checklist committee. So at this time, I'd like to ask our vice chair to please acknowledge those members of the committee who have really, really worked hard and have produced such a successful and extraordinary document. I think it's one of a kind, frankly. Well. Um I will read the list, and uh, hopefully uh, you can still hear me. But uh, we had on our checklist committee Mike Brinkman, building official, and uh, CSG consultant.
We had uh, Ida Clare with the Division of State Architect. She could not be here today. We also had Sue Mo, who's with the Division of State Architect, who could not be here. We had Stoyan Bumbalo, who is with Housing and Community Development. had uh, a participant from American Institute of Architects, California Council, Kurt Kuknick. We had Gary Lehman, City of Oroville, and member of Calbo. Commissioners Michael Paravagna, who is, looks like he's in Sacramento at this point. And I'm, you've got more envelopes, so who am I leaving out? My, myself, of course. <laughs> 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 so, with that, I, I hope I didn't omit anybody. Uh, thank you very much for all the hard work, and I think as a group, we're very proud of it product and look forward to evolving this thing and making sure it's working for everybody. Thank you. <laughs> and just to conclude our section, I want to look, we look forward to all of you continuing to work on making California one of the most, the most accessible state in the union. Because believe me, I travel a lot and we are better than most, but we have a long way to go. And thank you so much for being here and witnessing this historical moment, actually. Okay, thank you. Now, at, at this point in our meeting, um, I have great pleasure to introduce the next uh, person on the agenda. Yomi Wong manages the Disability Access Compliance Program for the Peninsula Coastal Region of Sutter Health. Yomi works closely with facility planners, architects, contractors, and I'm sorry, it should have been architects and contractors, <laughs> responsible for completing barrier removal projects on existing sites. Prior to joining Sutter Health, Yomi served as executive director of the Berkeley, California-based Center for Independent Living, whose mission was to promote full social inclusion of all people with disabilities. So at this point, it gives me pleasure to turn the meeting over to Yomi to run the balance. Thank you. Can everybody hear me okay? Great. So it's a great honor for me to be here. I am not a building inspector or an architect, but I work with them, and I appreciate um, all of the hard work and the focus um, and the attention to detail that goes into what it is that you do. And um, as a person with a disability, I also um, know what it feels like when, when we miss the mark and we miss opportunities to catch things. So I think that this is an exciting moment. Um, it is a historic moment, and I think that it falls in line nicely with the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is what our country is celebrating this summer. So congratulations to the commission and to the subcommittee that put this together. It looks like... Um, you know, a lot of work went into it. I mean, it's just a couple of pages when you fold it out, but I know that there, it's a lot of detail involved. 
So we're just going to spend um, about the next 40 minutes or so having a discussion with people who work in the field who are going to talk about the checklist and about some of the challenges and opportunities that they see um, today. So as I, as I call your name and start to introduce you, if you could just make your way up onto the stage or the dais, that would be great. So Gary Lehman, is Gary here? Gary Lehman has performed accessibility surveys and inspections in California and Nevada since 1987. He has been in construction for over 35 years, building inspection plan review since 1987, and a California licensed contractor since 1995. He holds a bachelor's degree in construction management and a master's degree in public administration. Mr. Lehman is a certified accessibility specialist who has performed more than 500 accessibility evaluations for public accommodations and government facilities. So welcome, Gary. Jeff, by the way, Jeff has over 25 years of experience as a licensed contractor and has been serving the city of Los Angeles since 2006. He is a senior building inspector with the city of Los Angeles, has served as the training officer for the Los Angeles Building Residential Energy and Zoning Codes, and he is also a certified access specialist as of 2014. Welcome, Jeff. Randy Goodwin. Randy has 30 years of experience in building architecture and open space development. He earned his BA and MA degrees in architecture from Montana State University. And Randy currently works for the City of West Sacramento as the Architectural Projects Manager, City Architect, and Building Official. That's a lot of jobs. Randy is a commissioner serving on the California Alfred E. Alquist Seismic Safety Commission. Welcome. Arnie Lerner. Oh, here we go. Hi, Arnie. Already here. Arnie earned his Bachelor of Architecture degree from the University of Kansas School of Architecture and Urban Design and has been a practicing architect within the architectural, preservation, and accessibility communities in San Francisco for the past 32 years. Recently, Mr. Lerner became a Certified Access Specialist with the California Division of the State Architect. In addition, Mr. Lerner has served on the Board of Directors of the San Francisco Chapter of the American Institute of Architects, on the City of San Francisco's Code Advisory Committee, and for the past five years on the San Francisco Access Appeals Commission, serving as its president for the next year. Elizabeth Ryder. Elizabeth is a constant advocate for the building code and its, and its proper use most especially to ensure that accessibility is followed through both on plan review and in the field. Mrs. Ryder currently serves as plans examiner for commercial and residential projects and has done numerous inspections of accessible features in commercial facilities. She has served as building official, plans examiner, and building inspector in numerous jurisdictions, and she is currently employed by CSG Consultants and serves as the building official for the city of Pacifica. Welcome, Liz. And finally, Jeff Janes. Jeff is currently the, building, the chief building inspector for the county of Fresno and has spent the last 17 years working for public agencies as a plans examiner and building official. Jeff holds a bachelor's degree in architecture and a master's degree in ecological design, as well as being a certified plans examiner, building inspector, and building official. Jeff is also a director with the California Building Officials, CALVA. So welcome to the panelists. 
so. I'm just going to throw out uh, an open-ended question, and, and whoever would like to lean in and answer the question, feel free. So it's kind of twofold. What are some of the challenges you face to improve compliance with accessibility regulations, and how might um, how might this new checklist help improve your efforts? Should I tell oh. you? Go ahead, sure. Andy. Um, I, uh, I am in a small jurisdiction. First of all, I, I want to thank uh, the commission for inviting me. Um, I'm. I'm humbled and I'm surrounded by people who are much more knowledgeable than I am and I hope I can share something today. <laughs> and uh, one of those things is my appreciation for the checklist. Um, in my jurisdiction, we are in a building boom, as in many jurisdictions, and um, we see um, high-rise buildings coming into a small jurisdiction that has not had them before. And we've had one 19-story building that at the completion, it's a classic story, it had accessibility problems. And the only way to deal with them uh, was really to go in structurally, change some things. So this list, as simple as it is, would have helped dramatically. and. Um, it was before I was building official. I've heard the nightmares since I came in. And um, things like this will um, not only assist the architects, builders, um, and developers who are our clients, but they will also assist um, those behind the counter, the regulators. And I did um, talk to my inspectors, and they are graciously thankful, um, and they do use the list now. The, the one thing that they, one of my inspectors, one of his favorite comments is, um, make it look like the picture. And his comment was, more pictures. Um, the fact that it's a Word document, um, and I will take that back to him, um, makes it so he can insert the pictures. So it is a living, working document that's, that's working now in my jurisdiction, and I just want to thank you. So I have a follow-up question that anybody can answer about um, over-the-counter permit uh, submittals. How do you check for accessibility compliance in that process? Anyone? Yeah, this is Gary Lehman. Uh, at the city of Oroville, we do perform uh, numerous over-the-counter permits uh, to check for accessibility. <clears throat> we review the plans just the same, but most of it is uh, accessibility comes with commercial. However, when they come for a, uh, <clears throat> say they're putting in a ramp for barrier removal, because I have a proactive method in the city of Oroville for the businesses to be able to come in and pull permits for barrier removal, that I will actually um, provide them with the information and handouts that are specifically out of the code to be able to do that to assist them in the process. So that's how I assist with over-the-counter permits if it comes to that with commercial. Thank you. So can somebody just talk about how this checklist um, might help small businesses better comply with California's accessibility regulations? 
the Steve Dolan and um, as part of the checklist uh, committee, I think I would have to say, remember, this was a checklist geared to train building officials who do have the code at their fingertips for, and they're much more knowledgeable and familiar with the code than the common uh, business person. So I would still recommend that this is not geared to the common business person. This is geared to a practicing building official and uh, would still encourage that they may need some counsel as a small businessman before embarking on their changes. Um, I have a comment. Yes. Yeah. I think it, the value that it has for a small business person is that it makes a list in very simple terms of the kinds of things that they need to be asking about for their store. Like, like doors in series, what does that mean? So it allows them to ask the question. Um, and of course, if they're really energetic, they can see the code online. But it allows them to ask their, their builder or their architect, uh, you know, what does this mean, closing speed, and so on. So in very simple terms, it, it introduces them to the code, as opposed to if they try to go to a code document, they'll be lost. Thank you. So just wondering how your departments have engaged California Certified Access Specialists in plan review and site inspections. Um, has this helped to improve accessibility compliance? Gary, uh, I'll, I'll jump into that. Um, uh, I unfortunately have not successfully passed the test yet. I've taken it a few times. Come close. Um, but that knowledge and um, CASP specialists that we work with, um, we often refer businesses, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good segue in from the prior question, because we have small business, many small businesses that say we've, we've uh, been asked to comply and what do we do? Um, so we refer them typically to a certified access specialist. We help them as well. We have certified access specialists who work with us through uh, a local consultant. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a program that not only has served the disabled community, it's, it's, it's um, helped small business, I think, significantly. Um, anyone on the panel who is a certified accessibility specialist want to talk a little bit about how you work with small businesses? If that's at all part of your scope. This is Gary Lehman. I am a certified access specialist institute or specialist. Uh, and I am also the chief building official for the city of Oroville. So what I do in assisting the small businesses in our community is I reach out to them through the Chambers of Commerce. With the Chambers of Commerce, what I provide to them, once again, as I indicated, proactive, proactive, is the ability that I will, for free of charge, because I'm uh, community service, go to their site and their business and walk their business, have them have a list, and I will indicate to them what type of barriers that they may have within their business and they put that list together. This is what then generates the barrier removal of the barriers in a kind way. 
what it has done is open the businesses uh, to come in freely and feel comfortable coming into the building department and feel comfortable with myself coming into their business because I'm not going in there saying you have to do this and knocking at their doors to shut them down. I'm going in there and saying, well, here's, here's the things that I see. And when you have the money and the time <clears throat> to get them done that you can then, you know, you can come in and get a permit for one at a time. You don't have to come in and do it all at one time. And this is been very helpful within our community and at the same time when they come into the building department I have the handouts ready for them which is a lot of times is providing a, a ramp or providing an accessible counter or providing accessible seating uh, simple stuff that they weren't aware of a lot of times it's moved the planner out away from the strike side of the door so individuals can use the door so sometimes it's not even requiring a um, architectural barrier to be fixed. It's just requiring something to be relocated. And I bet they're very relieved when you, you give them sort of a short punch list of those easily removable barriers, those low-hanging fruit items, and, and they don't have to spend a lot of money to do that. They are. Uh, once again, we have advocates in our city, just like there's advocates in many cities. Um, some speak louder than others. But at this, the advocates also feel comfortable with the process that goes, and they see that businesses are acting in a positive way and a positive approach. And this also uh, helps them, they say, sleep at night better because they don't have this overwhelming shadow over their head, not knowing what needs to be done, but not able to always afford a cast to come in and give them a full survey. I have a question for either uh, Jeff, by the way, or for Liz um, about code enforcement in your jurisdiction. So how are accessibility regs currently enforced in, say, Los Angeles, very big city, or Pacifica, which is a little bit smaller? Go ahead and start. Okay. Uh, well, as um, we look at the, uh, the commercial buildings, and that's, that's really where uh, we need to concentrate, we have a group of guys. I have 85 to 89 commercial building inspectors that work the whole 465 square miles of uh, the city of L.A., and they're responsible to make sure that the um, accessibility is done properly. Um, and as the training officer, um, <clears throat> Excuse me. One of my jobs is to make sure that they're updated on the code. And, and last week, when um, I got the uh, the finalized version of of the checklist, and and quite frankly, um, our our the city of LA's guru Eva O'Neill, who has since retired, uh, she did have a hand in that. In fact, uh, she had asked me to to review it months back, and and uh, I had made a few suggestions, and I saw that they were on there. I don't know if it was on there before or not, but. Um, the nice thing about this code is it doesn't have the pictures. Um, the pictures take up too much room. Um, and, and so I've taken this, I laminated it before we had this, uh, the, the three-piece, and I gave it to the guys, and they were very appreciative. One of the main reasons they're appreciative of it is because a year after the new code came out, they're still not comfortable with finding where everything is in the code. It has changed so much. 11B, it was a total rewrite. and. Um, 
you know, most of the inspectors uh, in, in our city are, let's just say we're not spring chickens anymore. You know, we came in after working several years as, as um, contractors or, or what have you, and, and our average age is probably in the higher 50s. And learning a new code, as, as big of a change as it was, um, is not easy for them. So this is nice. It gives them the code section. They already know the measurements. They don't need everything written down. They don't need pictures. Scope has changed on a few things that they need to be aware of, and so they get that. But for the most part, um, the numbers haven't changed that greatly. Um, there's a little bit. And, and the thing is, is in the last three code cycles between um, um, 2010 CBC to the 2015 change, we've changed the, the placement of the toilet three times, really. Mm -hmm. And so the, the numbers on, on a list are, are not always going to be there. And so we actually like the fact that it's condensed. I was trying to get it into, you know, if I could have gotten into one page, it would be better for them, but you can't. I mean, you look at most of the ADA ones, and they're, uh, what is it, uh, there's a four-part one on uh, that I looked up yesterday, 88 pages. Mm -hmm. We already have a code book. Uh, we have pictures in the code book. Um, but what, what we need is something to go through and concisely, we have a picture, it's called a set of plans, and we can go off of that as well. And so um, just a reminder of when we should be looking at things. Uh, some of the big things that, you know, we, we get the big things. We, we get the toilets that are supposed to be where they're supposed to be. We, we know that uh, when, when I check the, um, um, the faucet, that it needs to be a certain size off of here. What, what we really need are um, the reminders that, okay, this is, uh, are, are we looking at a, a doctor's office? Do I need to relook at the, um, uh, the parking? If somebody wants to change something, you know, uh, okay, is that allowed under the new code? And it kind of gives us a checklist to make sure that we're not running, because the plans aren't always the way the plans are when they get built. And so this has been really well received. Um, if nothing else, it helps them to go to answer the question by gives them the sections that they need to go to. And that's one of the big things the guys really liked. Um, it's only been a week. I haven't got a lot of feedback on it. But... Um, they don't, they wouldn't, if it's, if it's five pages, they're not going to use it. Right. Two pages, yeah. Yeah, we can use it. Thank you. Great. So Liz, how, how, does, sure. yeah, how so, does that enforcement play out in Pacifica? Yeah, so code enforcement in Pacifica is permit-based, which most of it is in, in all the jurisdictions on the peninsula. Um, and the checklist will be used in, in our jurisdiction, and many like it, um, more as a reminder so that we don't have what, we refer to as the late hit. So the construction project is done, and guess what? The parking is in the wrong place, or the ramp is missed, or there's no handrail, or whatever. So we can use this um, in the field just to go down, and, and as we're out there, we read through it in the car before we start the inspection and say, okay, what am I going to look at today? All right, now I've got it in my head. Now you go to the field, you get out the plan, you look at it. Okay, I, here, I've got it all done. That was easy because we have the checklist now. So we will use the checklist, and it's going to benefit the contractor because we're not going to be out there as long. We, we don't need to be because now we have a checklist and we can go boom, 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 just like you go right around the site. You take everything, do it one time, and you're done. So it will be very beneficial both um, for the code and for everyone's time. Thank you. So Randy, um, question for Randy. Yes. Yeah. So, um, 
Can you talk about generally some of the challenges you face in access compliance and, and if there's anything that this particular commission could do more for people that are in your industry? It's a great question. Thank you. Um, well, I think many of the challenges have been shared by other other panelists, um, and we um, and I share those in my jurisdiction. Um, CASP is small business. Um, we've talked about that a little bit. Um, they, in particular, um, I think the the CASP legislation and. Um, uh, rulemaking was centered around the small business person and uh, a list like this and I know you know one size fits all it has to be pretty generic but something that that's focused for small business mm -hmm. um, I spend um, as others do a significant amount of time helping small business um, with um, uh, accessibility and compliance and walking them through that. That's a big part of my job and um, it, a very important part of my job. Uh, if we can assist small business um, in a more robust way, I, I think that would be significant. To get your perspective. Okay. Um, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank CCDA for allowing us to be here today. And I can tell you as, as a building official and a Cowboy board member, um, I'd just like to thank CCDA for a job well done. This checklist is going to be very helpful, very useful. Um, what I'd like, what I've got from this checklist also is I'm, I'm going to take this back to our jurisdiction and I want to encourage builders to uh, call us out at these different phases for a consultation. And, and encourage that and just be upfront with them say look you know so we don't end up with what they talked about and I think Randy alluded to it as well as you know we don't want that you know cold shower at the end of the job saying, oh, by the way, you got to tear all this out because this isn't right and so forth. So um, so that being said, I, I think this checklist is going to be extremely useful. And like it's been spoke to, uh, alluded to before, it's, it's a living document, and so we'll, we'll make changes along the way and add to it, but um, good, good document. Are the CAS plan reviews enabling better compliance and fewer changes on the construction site and fewer deficiencies during final inspection? Yes, I, I found that to be true in our, in our jurisdiction. I, yes, I, I, I agree. Yeah. So I don't know if there are any questions that have come in from uh, over the phone or... Also invite members of the public to ask questions if they have them. Yes, could you come to the front? Thank you. You can identify yourself, speak into the mic. Thank you. Dominic Octavio with the city of Delano. I have a two-part question. First of all, we know a common complaint that we hear from businesses is that my business was inspected by an inspector and passed and finaled. How do you think that this checklist might help with that uh, problem when it comes back and it's found that that uh, business was not compliant? And part two, how do you think that this checklist is going to benefit inspectors in the field? I can take part of that. Um, I, one of the great things about this checklist is it is brief 
and um, for the limited time that most inspectors have to check uh, check code items because they have everything else right structural mechanical plumbing electrical and accessibility is another one that needs to be checked so what's great is it is a tickler checklist and that's what it was intended to be and in it, the codes the quick code reference on this on the side is is excellent too because if you need to dig deeper it's there for you so I think compliance is going to be higher and especially we're talking about the front end and having the, that dialogue you know with the with the contractor the developer even the owner you know, and, and, and let's have that discussion, you know, up front about this. So that's, that's the benefit I see. And to piggyback on that a little, um, most inspectors have the code book in some version with them on the job site. Um, a lot of them have it on an iPad or a tablet. Some of them still have books in their car. But when the contractor wants to know how to fix a problem, what they want is the number how far does my toilet have to be from the wall? And if you absolutely couldn't remember that, there's your checklist, there's your code section, pull up your code on your iPad, show it to the builder, this is the answer, move it here, great, done, now we move on to the next thing. So it's an immediate answer and that's what they want. This Commissioner uh, Dolan, and I'm gonna kind of expand your question slightly. I, I think most of us intend this checklist to be the guide when we're removing barriers or when we have a permit active in front of us. But I think what I got out of your question was, you know, a relatively small percentage of all of the built environment out there today is currently under permit or active in the permitting process. There's a whole nother facet probably the majority of our buildings are existing buildings and they're not in the process of any permit work they may not have the benefit of this but from the public's viewpoint there seems to be that thought that well it was built 15 or 20 or 25 years ago it passed all the inspections so I'm grandfathered have we ever heard that <laughs> all the time does anybody want to talk about that? Because it's really a conundrum. <laughs> this grandfather thing. <laughs> Any well, panelists? Well, I mean, there's a certain amount of truth to that because if it was built uh, by the accessibility code in place at the time that they did their work, it enjoys a certain safe harbor, unless it's an item that's new in the code, and uh, and then, then you can't use it. But um, that's one of the things about the checklist is that uh, you may be looking at a building that uh, where they put their switches at 54 inches uh, above the floor and if you use the checklist it says 48 and so explaining that difference to people uh, is important. As a practicing CASP, Arnia, do you find that to be um, easy to explain to your clientele and your experience that they've got a, a safe harbor issue or possibly that it was just built wrong and doesn't qualify for the safe harbor? Um, well, at this point, the first thing I ask them is, do you want to, uh, do you want to meet current code uh, that, that's in place right now or do you want me to look at uh, what, what was okay back then and is okay now. And some people don't care whether it's grandfathered in or not or, or a safe harbor and don't understand that. But then a lot of people survey just using current code and people end up making changes they didn't necessarily have to do. 
Thank you. Anybody else have something they want to add? Well, uh, this is Gary Lehman once again. Uh, the checklist is actually, to answer your question, how it's helped uh, with the uh, construction industry is, in my jurisdiction, it helps significantly with a project where, uh, because up in the front phase, which was put in, that you look at this, the stages of construction and you have to look at the plans and the complete plans of what the finished product was. So an example was the electricians put in the electrical outlets at uh, 15 inches to the bottom of the box, as it says in the code, at the rough floor stage. And uh, when they looked at the checklist to look at the plans, what was going to be at the finished product, included an inch and a half lightweight concrete going over the floor because it was multi-story. So for fire resistance rating, then it was going to bring that finished floor up an inch and a half. Then the electrical outlets would have been non-compliant at the final stage. Catching it at the rough electrical stage was a big catch. Actually, the electrician that installed them was upset, but his boss that owned the business was very happy because if it would have had to been done at final, he indicated it would have put him out of business. But also, I'm in a small jurisdiction, and in a small jurisdiction, we all know about politics. And so sometimes when politics come in play, it affects when you're going to look at a $100,000 fix uh, and they know someone a little over your head and uh, there's, there's other things that roll down. So this checklist at that point in time made a big significant uh, catch and save within a whole lot of process. I think uh, also a uh, value of the checklist um, is sharing this with the contractor before they start work. Um, I like to, in like pre-construction meetings, share with the contractor, uh, this is what I'm going to use to measure uh, these things. You know, I'm going to use a 24-inch smart level, not an 8-foot smart level to measure things. And this is the method I'm going to use to test door pressure so that they know from the very beginning. But this, this would show, tell them this from the inspectors telling them, this is what I'm going to look at. So think about it before you hit that first nail. And so sharing this with the contractor at a pre-construction meeting or it always says contact the inspector before you start. Uh, and if they can somehow exchange this information, they might look at it because there's always uh, architects we always put on the drawings, the contractor is responsible sure. for everything. And so he <laughs> might look and go, oh, wait a minute, have we dealt with this 32 inch? It'll get them into so the, that front end work and that thing. thinking about what what's coming. This is what the inspector is going to be looking for. And I should be looking for it, too, before I start. How much community education are you doing in your respective jurisdictions or your, or your communities, um, both with contractors, um, architects, and just with the community, your end users who I consider myself one of your end users? Um, what, what type of outreach or community education are you involved in? And, and I'd like to ask that of everyone. And we can start. Well, in San Francisco, um, Inspector Richard Halloran, Rick over there, has uh, put together a very uh, ambitious program where he's been almost every week having a Thursday lunchtime uh, seminar on, 
on a different topic, and he's bringing uh, those of us in, in the private sector in to come and talk about things. I'm going to be doing something in August about historical buildings, and some other people that were here earlier have done them. And so um, and it's one of the things I've done, too, is taught a course here on once a month on a Saturday. This was a few years ago. So just sort of that kind of education has been very helpful. Well, as, uh, as a training officer with the, the city of L.A., we've done outreach um, on, on several different topics. Um, we've taken, we've done um, three classes on, on CAFS training. Um, um, I do a lot with the inspectors, but we're also doing uh, um, just outreach with some architects and things like that that want to come in as well. And they've been very appreciative and, and in fact, have asked for more, a little bit more than I can actually accommodate. But um, <clears throat> I'm also training the uh, code enforcement because we have another issue where we have buildings that uh, are not having permits. Um, sometimes things don't, ma uh, don't meet what need to be done, not because they were done 20 years ago because things have changed without permits and things like that. And so they need to be um, brought in line with that as well. Many of our code enforcement um, officers are not trained in, in the um, Chapter 11B because they are primarily um, residential inspectors. And so uh, I've had to cross that barrier too because we've, we've typically only trained our commercial guys in it. And so that we were missing a lot of uh, um, things that could have been caught. And so we're, we're starting to train on there um, for two reasons. One, um, we're, we're also seeing uh, one of the things that we hadn't taken into consideration uh, uh, because we do have residential one and two family dwellings and, and commercial uh, inspectors who are different. But we get a lot of model homes that are set up um, and, and they go through the plan check, and there is um, parking, there is accessible routes, there are, uh, um, they have to have accessible um, bathrooms in these model homes or provide them elsewhere, and they weren't getting picked up by the um, residential inspectors. So um, the last couple of months I've been having to go through this with them and explain to them that, yes, you're responsible for that. You know, they say, well, we don't look at sidewalks. And when it comes to single-family dwellings, they're right, whether it's a, a walkway or, or what have you. But when it comes to needing accessibility because they plan on using it either for a live-work or for, um, um, in this case, a model home, things like that, they need to be able to make the catch. And so uh, we did, um, they're, they're going to get those that uh, are needing it, those in code enforcement, those that have model homes, things like that, are going to be getting a copy of the checklist as well to help them to understand these are the times that they need to be looking at it when they're normally not thinking about doing that. Thank you. Anyone else want to answer the outreach question? Yeah, sure, go ahead. sure. Um, you know, we do, uh, yeah, we have an email group that, uh, you know, for professionals, architects, engineers, so when we get updated information, we just do an e-blast uh, to folks. Um, we also, we encourage, um, folks that come in, architects, engineers, builders, to do like our Calbo Training Institute. We have lots of accessibility classes, and so we always encourage them. I sometimes feel, and this is somewhat anecdotal, but uh, like we're in this bubble, and the builders, and they don't know what's that, what do you have behind the counter that's, you know, it's like, no, this is all public information. <laughs> we'll share it with you. We'll, we'll, you know, tell you about the same training opportunities we go to. We'd love to see you there. 
you know, just makes the whole process much better. So demystifies the whole thing a little bit. Correct. <laughs> I formally, um, the executive director of the Chamber of Commerce in my city um, has my cell phone and my direct line to my office. You know, Gary was talking about politics. Um, that's just the reality. Um, she also understands what we do and listens, which is a gift for me. Um, so um, back to my earlier comment about small business, we hold workshops, outreach for small businesses. Um, I'm always available to go out and review an existing building regarding uh, barriers and accessibility. Um, and then informally, it's, it's been really important to me as uh, I'm the current chapter president for uh, Sac Valley Association of Building Officials to reach out to the other groups, to the builders, to the architects, um, to the people that write the specifications. Um, there, I mean, there's, there are many, many groups that are involved with this. And we put together association events um, just to informally mingle, and it's amazing. Um, the information that gets shared and the cards that get exchanged, and um, it's, it's really just staying engaged with that community. Right, exactly. I was thinking along the same lines. So long as you keep up with your education committees, whatever they are, whatever group you happen to be in, make sure to continue to go to the classes, put it, put it out there that you're going to have a class, invite as many people as possible, that that's how you continue to build the, the trust with each other and get your compliance because a lot of times a change will happen in the code. The building official knows it's changed. Maybe the building inspector knows it's changed. The contractor doesn't know. The uh, local designers in the town, they don't know either. And so if you bring them in and invite them to come to the code change classes or whatever, then everybody's on the same page. They all know what the requirements are going to be beforehand. Then they can design their project to meet the requirements so that we don't have any issues down the road. I have a question. There are, there's a lot of many, many years of experience represented on this panel. And, and um, uh, Jeff, you had mentioned, you know, you're having um, folks that work for you who are of a certain generation. And, and I think that the, maybe there's a, a spectrum represented in terms of um, what generation we're representing here. I'm, I'm curious, for those of you who have been in the field sort of, um, we'll just say pre-ADA, to now, how has your perspective on access and the built environment evolved on a, not just a professional level, but on a personal level in all of the years that you've been doing this work? This is Gary Lehman. and I can uh, kind of ask, answer this. Uh, well, pre-ADA, I was in construction, started my construction career back in 1976, but accessibility was still required because we had the 1961 ANSI standards, and um, it was required to be accessible. Now, the understanding of what a curb ramp was supposed to be like, because the ANSI standards was quite vague, we did pour numerous curb ramps and tear them out and redo them and tear them out and redo them trying to figure out what it was that was supposed to be to where today it, it's pretty much there as to what 
is specifically supposed to be for a curb ramp. Um, the same thing was for the restrooms, and it indicated that, uh, you know, you had to have turning clearance, and you had to have the circular, okay, well, you, it, it never gave a, a dimension, where today's codes, now it gives a strict dimension. So uh, that may, that's come a long ways. Also in the um, 80s, I was inspecting under the ANSI standards and uh, under some of the California Accessibility Standards codes. And uh, the ANSI standards, once again, was quite vague. That's what we went by in Nevada, which was in the casinos. I, had, I was inspecting casinos, you know, in, in Nevada. And, yes, they had to follow the guidelines of accessibility, but it was still so vague that as an inspector, you didn't really know, okay, what do we and, and how do it and how is it really supposed to be? Where today, as an inspector, you can go to the code and, once again, it's more specific in telling you how it should be. There are the vague areas within it, but in most of it, for a ramp or a curb ramp, this is what we were having issues and problems with, or the size of a restroom or the layout of the restroom. These are what we had issues with in the past. Now has all been, you know, modified much accurate. Thank you. Anyone else want to offer a personal perspective? Yeah, this, this is Jeff Chains. I'll offer my... <laughs> um, I, I see most of this um, as far as accessibility and stuff. It, you're basically falling into two groups, those who have and those, you know, those who will have. I mean, at some point in your life, you are going to, you're going to need to be able to access... You know, a, a public space or somewhere, and then, you know, that's it's important. Yeah, I mean, just I was thinking about this. I mean, the um, the old uh, phrase where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, if people understood, and that, this is not necessarily the job of building department, people understood this was more than just a, a code requirement. This was a people's basic civil right, and that it's the right thing to do. They might take it a little more seriously than it's just a building code thing. And just to, this is probably totally unrelated too, but a lot of the problems that I see in accessibility uh, don't start at uh, the uh, first inspection with the building inspector. It really goes back to the architects who don't design uh, with dimensional tolerance. And if, if every building department would tell all of their architects to go to the, the Access Board's website, and look at the study that they had David Ballas do about three years ago on dimensional tolerances and read chapter two, there's three of them, and it's all about designing intolerance. The codes have changed in recent years so that there's, there's fewer and fewer, very few absolutes and more ranges. But still, when I, when I look at drawings, because I do some uh, reviews to, uh, I see the absolute still appearing, you know, uh, 1 in 12 for a ramp and, and 32 inches clear, and people don't realize that people can't build that way. So if they would all go to the U.S. Export Access Board's website, look at David Ballas' study and read Chapter 2 and design the tolerance in their drawings, by the time it gets to construction, uh, there's room for the contractor to move, and there's, they'll have much more accessibility. So it really starts much sooner, and it's that that research is is really important, and building departments should let people know about it. It's interesting that you mentioned um, 
physical access and barrier removal as part of um, our nation's civil rights laws and framework. Do, do any of you see yourselves as supporting the disability rights, civil rights movement? Or even being part of it? Oh, absolutely. Um, I um, started, as you kindly introduced, 30 years ago in construction, um, made my way into architecture. And um, the code at that time was one small book, the UBC. And um, it did have ANSI standards, but it was minimal. And um, what I've seen over 30 years is, a, is, a, is an awareness of um, inclusion um, that's something that, that's very important to me with my inspectors, uh, with everyone in my division, department. Um, and uh, the ADA um, really has assisted that and um, others in becoming more aware. And um, I thankfully have uh, <laughs> a teenage and uh, children in their 20s who poke me and keep me aware as well. Um, but uh, uh, it's, it's, I see that as a very important component of, of my work. Yes. And we're really educating the public. I've gone out on jobs, small jobs, where you go there and you say, okay, these are not meeting the requirements. Um, in one particular job, the bar was not lowered uh, for seating at uh, 60 inches for, for accessibility. And the contractor, the owner, they didn't want to take up their space. And I said, it's not, it's not something that you're doing to be nice. It's not something to attract uh, people that have to be in a wheelchair and make it nice for them. I said, it's part of what needs to be done. It is a civil right. And I've gone through and I've gone back to jobs where after they've done, they've spent the money to get past, they've put it back in because they think they're taking up space that they want to use. Uh, another thing that I see a lot of times at bars is that area that we do lower, they use it as for the waitress to come in. It becomes a service area. And over and over again, I, I insist before I sign the, the, um, the card that uh, the, the ISA is permanently installed, so it can't just be something sitting there and they can remove it and use it for something else. I make sure that the areas that uh, can be marked are marked, and still sometimes they get changed back. And it's, it's a shame that you can't reach everyone, as important as it is. But uh, it, it falls upon um, building inspectors to understand what needs to be done and to educate. And I think we will, we will get there. We're getting better than it used to be in some regards um, uh, as far as people understanding. I've seen ISA on, on um, bathrooms that I'd have a hard time being able to body and turn around in. Uh, so the idea of having the sticker doesn't mean anything if you don't have the room. And so um, that's, that's where code enforcement comes in. That's where um, uh, if you have a permit, that's where the building inspector comes in. And it doesn't start at the final saying, oh, Jesus is off, we've got to change it. It starts at the beginning to let them know that this is important, you're going to be looking at it, and you're going to make sure that they have all of it done correctly. When I was 
working at the Center for Independent Living, we would often um, provide consultation and advice to small businesses that wanted to know how they could um, improve access or or and unfortunately sometimes it was after they had had a complaint or legal action and so um, one of the first things we would do at all is always refer them to a CASP and and say that you need to get professionals involved um, but it, it was always startling to me how many business owners would just say they just did not understand that they had to provide access and what that meant and then they always blame you guys right <laughs> they always say, but I passed inspection. I've got a story I can share with you. I would simply add that uh, accessibility has just become more prominent as a, um, a concept, really, as a result of ADA. Um, I guess I came up from a different world of, you know, I, I, in 1958 when my younger sister was born with cerebral palsy. and having her go through special educations, having all of her friends being of one disability sort or another, I just became more conscious of it. And I think the hard part that we all get is, you know, representatives of the construction industry, the building officials department is the poor member of the public who just hasn't had the benefit of the exposure that maybe I had or you've had or somebody else to, to visualize and to be able to explain, well, you know, we have grab bars for this reason because, remember, you know, this is how it gets used. And so many official, building officials may be put on the spot because they don't know a certain rationale for why something's there. And I would just encourage that it makes sense for everybody to understand the purpose of what we're doing. It's not just to meet a code. There is some function that it really does help. Yeah. yeah, I've got a quick, quick, uh, quick story here. Um, a couple years back, we were working with a business owner through the permit process for a candy store in the mountains. He was kicking and screaming about the accessibility requirements all the way, but eventually uh, complied and had a fully uh, accessible business, compliant business. So I get this cold call about, you know, it was about three months later, you know, after the building was final, and the business owner, the business owner was apologizing to me. Because we had gone through, you know, they called the Board of Supervisors and said, you know, why are you making, we went through the whole thing, as Gary alluded to earlier. Um, when I asked why, he stated that having an accessible business was the best thing that ever happened. I, so I asked him to explain that statement. And he stated that with all the tour buses and people traveling to Yosemite, his place now had the reputation for being one of the fully compliant businesses, not to mention all the personal thank yous he got uh, from the public. So that actually that experience <laughs> led him to voluntarily upgrade uh, two of his other facilities in other parts of the state. So we do have those stories, too. You should put them on a poster or something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, was, I was shocked. <laughs> This is Gary Lehman. I need to know where that candy store is because I do go to Yosemite, and sometimes when you're driving up there and you want to stop, I'm like, and I'm just going to say, this is the reality, right? Yep. So I, can I get in there? Can I go to the bathroom? Can I shop? Um, you know, so, yeah, I'd like to know where that candy store is. Okay. Yeah, I'll tell my friends. Um, well, just to follow up on your question, um, well, basically my whole career, my career was – was motivated by civil rights. I think I was the first architect recruited by VISTA in the 60s in Chicago in a community design center. But it really wasn't until, I think it was the uh, early 90s, I went down to LA with uh, Barry Atwood. We were looking for, for a job and we had 
a dinner in a couple's house who had been involved in uh, protests where they blocked traffic with their wheelchairs to get attention and so on. And, and it, it all of a sudden clicked in my head, this is the same thing as, as civil rights marchers blocking traffic and so on like that. And, and uh, I think that's the problem with the public, that there just isn't that connection that this is a civil right. It's just an obligation. And uh, until it gets to that point where people understand that it really is, uh, it just makes it a little harder. I don't know that I'll live to see the day where universal design is just the standard, but you know, that would eliminate a lot of that when we design for everybody. Anybody else want to add any thoughts? One quick one. Um, uh, I've had very few mentors in my life, but one significant mentor, Tim Sullivan. He was the former building official for the city of Sacramento. And Tim, at one point, um, before I knew him, um, put all of his inspectors in wheelchairs and sent them through um, old Sacramento, which is notoriously um, unaccessible. And um, uh, that, uh, that type of um, that type of awareness is so important. That is one of our tasks as building officials and as regulators to increase that awareness. Um, and that's part of my overview as, a, as an architect as well. But um, we, don't, uh, we don't just read black and white. We uh, do a lot of interpretation and we have clients. Um, and as building officials, we have all the citizens of our jurisdiction and those who come into it. So it's, it's, it is a very, very important facet of what we do. For anyone on the panel, how do you go about when you're educating either small business owners or contractors, um, talk about sort of the range of access? Because I think oftentimes when we talk about the built environment, and barrier removal people envision a person with a mobility disability. But we should also be designing for um, and doing code enforcement for a range of disabilities, um, visual impairment, all, all sorts of things. So if you could just talk a little bit about um, some of the lesser understood aspects of accessible uh, spaces. One of the, one of the big problems that uh, I have had with architects is um, well, there's two. The line on the on these stairs, they want to they want to make it go away. And I said, you can't. The whole idea is so that you can see it. They so, wanna, so for individuals with low vision, no, low vision, mm -hmm. um, uh, they try to they try to do something that looks that meets it. And it looks like it fits there. And I said, that's not the point. It's supposed to stand out so they can see it. I've had a couple of carpets where I said this isn't contrasting enough. And, and they said, well, there's no standard. And there, there is a standard um, as far as contrasting goes. It's just not codified. But um, that and also trying to hide, if you will, the uh, truncated domes, um, not wanting to put that. And, and here's a, the truncated domes is, is, is one everybody likes to, to say something about because it's hard for somebody in a walker to get over the truncated domes, and yet it's necessary for a different person who has a different disability. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, that's, it's something that people complain about all the time. They try to leave it out and what have you. And then those that uh, a lot of architects try to hide it. I said the whole idea is not to, it's a warning. You don't want to hide the warning. Um, you know, you're not supposed to camouflage it. 
So working with um, um, people on that. And then we have in the, in the current building we're in, um, it's very odd how how they've done this uh, this step, and and using trying to use grooves to to make it to, instead of doing any kind of lining, and that just makes it very hard, especially in the evening at nighttime um, with the type of construction. It's a, it's a very um, looks neat, but it's not very functional as a, at a set of stairs, and and the fact that they are using lines rather than. I'm, when I'm saying grooves, instead of putting in the, the warning line, it, it makes it very hard. And yet, um, a lot of architects still think that's okay. Interesting. One of the, uh, this is Commissioner Dolan, one of the textbook uh, just wonderful examples that, you know, we, we all have once or twice in our career come up. But um, I was trying to explain in a strip shopping center to a client why they needed some sort of permanent room identification for the suites. And we were arguing. I mean, there was no other way of saying it. We were in a vacant suite, and it was, I can't afford this. I've got to go to the bankruptcy judge and get money because the property had gone into foreclosure. And he said, this isn't going to help anybody. And right then, the door to the suite was flung open, there was a uh, woman who was blind, obviously, who threw the door open and said, is, is this the hair salon? I have an appointment. I'm late. And which, which is suite 204? And my gosh, it was just like I had prompted that. But unfortunately, um, you know, it was really a, a situation. A you were talking about tactile signage. We were talking about the tactile permanent room identification sign that would identify each suite in a big long line of different front doors to different suites and lo, lo and behold that client, the argument ended tactile signs showed up the next week so it's but that's we all you, have that's the, exactly what you have to do is give that example now your example came through the door so that was easy for you um, I've given the example uh, where people have some element that's not accessible say they have doorknobs in commercial and I say would you hire a veteran of course I would hire a veteran. Would you hire a veteran who had uh, a, an IED blow up at, at them and they don't have um, hands that they can with five fingers anymore and so they need a lever handle hardware to access the suite? Oh, yeah, yes, I would hire that person. Okay, then go buy lever handled hardware and get rid of your doorknobs. So it's not all about a wheelchair, it's about vision, it's about hearing, it's about um, any sort of something that is not a, 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 an element that it was the way that I look, perhaps, or, or something, you know. So, so you frame all, it in a way that that person might be able to understand. And sometimes you have to be rather abrupt with it. But it is it kind of goes right back to your civil right would you hire a veteran? Of course. Would you hire a person in a, a wheelchair? Oh no, you wouldn't really. Oh, okay. So then you—that's a different you, conversation. You would just—you <laughs> would just be in violation of, of the law. Then you're okay. good with that, you know. So uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of that out there too. So it's all about the the visual. How do you get them to understand why the code is written that way? I find that in, in my role at Sutter Health, so, um, you know, my job is to, I basically see myself as the quarterback for our disability compliance program. So there's our policies and our procedures, but then there's also our barrier removal. So I am kind of the quarterback for the team of planners 
and architects and, and everybody that's involved with um, building our care sites, but also doing the barrier removal and then reporting on our progress there. And, um, you know, we have two things that come up sometimes. Either, well, that wasn't called out in a survey, and yet we have to do it to meet code. Um, but the other thing that we're working on there is um, it's sort of, you know, what I would like to see is to see people think maybe a little bit not strictly to the code. You know, some people are, are so focused on, well, this wasn't specifically spelled out, but the ADA still requires us to think about how a space is to be used and who's going to be using it and then to be designing it in a way that people can have equal access. And so I'm just wondering if anybody would talk a little bit about, you know, when you talked about doing outreach to architects and contractors and working with people that are on either the design end or the building end, um, do you ever have sort of those conversations when there might be a gray area where the code isn't very specific about something and yet we know that people need to provide this access? Well, that's when I uh, tell people to think about what was the intent of this and then how are the, especially in existing buildings or historical buildings, what are other ways to get at that intent because the code is basically built for new buildings. And uh, so if you can get people to, first of all, take a deep breath and, and, and tap their problem-solving genes and ask them to sort of think about what did they really intend here, you can sometimes come out with other ways or equivalent facilitations, other ways to get at the, get at the problem. That's exactly what we do in my work, and I think the team is really good at being able to think about how a space is going to be used or what the intent was. So, thank you. Are there any other questions from the public? Please identify yourself. Uh, my name is Ike Naji. I work for BART in transportation, which is slightly different from building. And uh, just to follow up to your question, um, I believe that most cities have uh, disability community, uh, mayor's commission on disability. Are you guys familiar? Do, do building officers uh, interact with those uh, people with disability, mayor's commission on disability in your area? Because some of the issues, just like the question, is that uh, <clears throat> a lot of times the users actually, uh, in most cases, can help you out to educate your architects and other people that are not familiar with the user needs in the environment. So an interaction between uh, an outreach to the community, do you ever suggest to architects, do you, have you reviewed this with disability community, for example? If it's a big project that will impact, you know, a lot of users. This is Gary Lehman. Uh, in Orville, sometimes uh, we have some historic buildings and some older buildings, and they go in and do alterations and repairs. And so this is when equivalent facilitation needs to be provided. And I do, it was Northern California Independent Living Services that I have a very close relation with, as well as with my CASP reviews, that I would have them um, assist me and review my, uh, review the process or what's being brought forward and then provide their input of what would be uh, better used or 
or a better approach to them if they felt. So, yes, I do use it. And they've changed their name just recently, but uh, the Northern, Val Northern California Independent Living Services, which is a advocacy group of different uh, uh, disabilities, not just one. And so I take advice from them, and I also have them review and approve um, along with my approval. So this is one approach that I use uh, to overcome politics, shall I say, sometimes. It's a great question. Thank you, Randy. Good one. Um, one of the many hats I wear, um, I've been trying to guide a group um, in the city with our transition plan, updating our transi transition plan, which is a living document for a city um, showing that we are removing barriers and our self-evaluation. Um, and uh, I have to explain that, not only the importance of this and all of the facets of it, um, it's vast to uh, our council, um, groups um, who represent uh, different disabilities um, and have different agendas. And it's, um, uh, again, just, uh, yes, a uh, uh, task that, uh, uh, often falls to a building official, and um, it's, it's an important facet of the community. Um, I've learned a lot through the transition plan process and the different community members that we've dealt with. We still have a long ways to go, <laughs> um, but uh, yes. So I think we're about ready to wrap things up unless anyone has any sort of closing thoughts or impressions that you would like to share. I'll yield to Angela, Executive Director of the CCDA. We at the Commission uh, truly uh, am so pleased to have each and every one of you share and enlighten us today. And uh, I know, well, I hope that this will not be our last time to gather uh, with all of you. Uh, this has been truly a, a, a tremendous effort to have this knowledge base together in one house is the energy and is fascinating. But I do know that it does not stop here. As has been said over and over again, the, this is a living document and it's going to require our uh, commission to um, be on top of it to help you uh, to continue to do your work as you, you see that this is going to aid you. Of course, if it's not maintained, it will not be an aid. So that is our charge to make sure that the document is, is current. However, we, as much as that we feel proud of, of it, we, we definitely want to get your feedback. And so our desire is to, um, after a while, uh, come back and, and, and respond and get a uh, open forum discussion from your jurisdictions. And we look forward to hearing from you. And, and we quite frankly want to hear any negative thoughts and things or opportunities. Um, we believe that that's the best way to improve and to grow with this document. And so whatever you have to share, we look forward to those feedback. And we hope that, as you have stated, that you've already done, uh, shared it with your colleagues. We, we, we like, and that's why we ask those who are on the phone and listening uh, to see that this is something that we want to hear back, that it's not a negative thing. 
that um, we we enjoy and look forward to hearing from you. Our website was given to you earlier, ccda.ca.gov. That's our website, and there's our contact information or our email um, that you may email us or contact us directly. Um, we do want to pause. We, we noticed that in our introductions and recognitions, um, uh, Commissioner Dolan would like to kind of make, make mention to a couple of recognitions, and we, we don't want to pause um, this transition time without making sure we make those recognition. Thank you, Angela. I'm afraid in handling all the paper and thanking the members of the uh, checklist subcommittee, I did omit a name, and I am very embarrassed about Eva O'Neill. I failed to give her the accolade and participation at that point in the meeting. So I know she's uh, may not be on the phone. She's not here, but I deeply apologize because and I'm being prompted that I, yeah. Mia Marvelli was on the handwritten list, but I may have skipped over her as well at the Building Standards Commission. So anyway, my deep and sincere apologies. At the end is uh, wrapping up my little bit representing the California Commission for Disability Access. We are a small commission. Please, it sounds like a big name. <laughs> but. Really, we need feedback. We need participants. We welcome each and every one of you to get on the phone on one of our meetings. If you can't, drop us a note. But we would love to have participation from people on the phone, people in person, or getting in contact with one of the commissioners or with Angela. And this input is very vital to help us be meaningful as a commission going forward to help everybody in California attain this goal of accessibility for all. So thank you very much for my time today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, with that um, note, we, we're going to transition this uh, meeting to another important aspect and responsibility of our job at the Commission as educational tool that we're providing for the uh, finding building inspectors. We also know that our consumers are are needing and required to have some educational process to assist them. Um, and this is something that we have been working on and developing a questionnaire, what we call the informational tool, that we would like to uh, provide to our business community. And, and, and we want to do is actually share a little bit of that questionnaire. So what we'll, we'll do now is transition uh, the dais with um, with, with a round of applause to our panel. And again, thank you all for participating. <laughs> and what we'd like to ask to at this point, and, and first of all, I want to do a special uh, recognition to Yomi Brong that she led the panel discussion. Uh, She is an awesome person, and a lot of she does so many uh, brilliant things for this uh, North the Bay Area, and we're thankful that she took the time to come and lead this panel discussion. As we're bringing force uh, up to the dais, we're asking that Regina Dick Indrizi, the executive director of the San Francisco Office of Small Business. Uh, 
join us here on the dais, as well as uh, Jesse Torres, Deputy Director of Small Business Advocate for the Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development. Go Biz. As we transition, um, we recognize that to, to create this educational tool for our consumers, we need to know what you're interested in. And so we, we created a, a, a questionnaire, and I, I'm just going to read a little bit of that as, as we transition, because we want to know what type of financial incentives would be appealing to help bring your business into compliance with relevant California accessibility regulations. So we know, and, and this is where we'll begin in our discussion today, because we have two um, what we call heavy hitters in this particular area of discussion, to, to answer those questions. <coughs> we also want to know, have you used a CAS within your business? And if you have used a CAS, what were some of your challenges? If you have not used a CAS, why didn't you? Do you know any, did you not find one? Um, did you know about the services? So we, we're going to ask those questions in our, in our informational tool. The, the part of if you have used a CAS, we'd like to know exactly your level of using the report. Because there's an assumption that once you get a CAS report done, that it's, it's over, that you've already answered the question, you'll know how to go forward. But the possibility that some are not really equipped to know what to do once they get the report. So we want to learn a little bit more about is there more information, is there more uh, instructions that you could use to help you to better assist you in using your CAS report. Um, and then we also have in our questionnaire, it's just basically what are some of the things that you need? We know that we've, we've come up with some ideas. We need to hear from you as small businesses. So we have this opportunity that we're setting aside to, as we go in our outreach opportunities across California, to reach out to you as small business. Again, this, this questionnaire, this informational tool will be on our website, as well as that we'll be delivering to uh, eBlast, or if you're on our digital list, we ask that you respond. We're going to be following up on, on this questionnaire because we want to know. We, we've done, as you've seen, a, a tremendous effort in putting a checklist together for the final building inspectors, but we know that there's more to go in terms in regards to our, our consumers to use to help them become compliant. So with that, again, as we stated, we know that typically we already heard that financial incentives, incentives could be the possible answer for many small businesses. And so that's why we brought today two uh, very knowledgeable um, representatives that can share. And in the beginning, uh, Regina, she's going to uh, present. To go through what our program is? Yes, yeah, so uh, Regina will be sharing with you and, um, and then Jesse. Uh, Torres from our uh, governor's office will follow. Thank 
Can I? Is this one? This one's on. So, uh, Regina Dickendrisi, Director of the Office of Small Business, and it's an honor to be uh, before you today. And thank you, um, uh, Angela. Uh, the, I just realized today that you are the director, so I apologize that I did not know that ahead of time, but congratulations. So um, I wanted to share uh, with you uh, programs that our office and the city have put together out of um, first uh, initiating with the response to businesses who were receiving lawsuits and not really understanding why and how this was why the, this was taking place and then two as we've been really engaging in on this process really learning some interesting things about what we as city government can be doing to improve the process so just very quickly in 2009, our Office of Small Business and the Northeast Federal Credit Union, which we'll learn about a little bit later, um, we've conducted over 66 presentations, um, including information on general workshops, campaigns by district and in specific languages. In 2011, we launched a comprehensive program to include um, loan assistance and legal assistance. Uh, in February of 2011, we mailed out over 3,000 mailers to restaurants in seven different languages, informing them of their obligations um, and letting them know about the uh, drive-by lawsuits. And then in January 2013, we uh, trained our city economic development organizations to educate their clients. These are new businesses and, and working through all of our network and support structures to begin to educate businesses um, as they're opening their business what they need to give consideration to. January 2013, we launched, the city launched a small business assistance program, initially targeting five neighborhoods um, that assist business with access um, to assessments and grants to help them improve their business. So these are subsidized CASP inspections. In November of 2014, uh, the city launched an online business portal, and I'd like to just take a moment to show you it. And so one of the key things I think um, one of the questions was asked, how do business, how can businesses say that they don't know um, about uh, their obligations? And, and because the, the, we mostly focus on the building code, but this is an area where the building inspectors don't necessarily go through every single, you know, don't necessarily go through and update and inspect mm -hmm. you on uh, whether you're in current compliance as they do in other areas. Um, and we also know that there are businesses who buy turnkey businesses, are very small, and, and may not be doing any uh, improvements, uh, tenant improvements to their business, um, that then that would even in, begin to even engage the Department of Building Inspection. So we've launched an online business portal, and um, one of the one of the key the, we've de designed ten steps in launching your business, and step eight is sorry this is a, not as easy to navigate as I thought it would be. Um, I'm so used to uh, I want this.
Well, I'm very uh, sorry that you're not going to be able to see this. I don't know how to scroll to the side here. Does anybody know how to work this at all? As we um, maximize the window, right? Yes. What about using uh, Can I? Am I supposed to be in here? Oh. oh. Yeah, so that's good. That's good. So we have um, we have identified as step eight as ADA compliance. So we're letting every single business who goes to our business portal was wanting to start their business that they need to give consideration for access compliance, and this is. This is a really important area of which to inform businesses that that is something that is equally important giving consideration to when they're starting their business. I will note that the SBA, when they, on their website, they don't make any mention um, when doing site selection um, around access compliance. The one federal entity that engages probably with the most number of small businesses does not even make mention of that. So uh, so this is one area that we've really learned like where are the where have been the barriers that businesses they don't know what their requirements are and so what are the touch points that we can reach them beyond you know the contractor and the department of building inspection. Um, and then in January of 2015, we, uh, we, uh, with the SB 1186 dollar, the dollar that's collected through the business registration, we're able to expand the subsidized CASP inspection citywide. So, um, to date, our loan program, it, six businesses have accessed the loan program. Um, 55 businesses have utilized the legal services. We've had over 25 articles in, in different um, mediums where we try to focus on especially um, language-specific uh, media. Um, Four panel presentations on KLW in conjunction with the SF Bar Association. Uh, we've had over 280 clients come to the Office of Small Business um, getting information about um, navigating, um, dealing with access compliance. And then 344 businesses um, have been assigned and or have received um, um, assessment assistance or with a subsidized CAS program. So in January 2011, the program that we launched, um, and um, I handed out packets, but um, if the audience is interested, um, we provided some overview of the federal laws and state laws that guide, um, guide businesses on what their requirements are. 
Uh, we have what the CASP program is and why it's important to do it, um, what to look for in a CASP inspector when you're going to hire one, a list of CASP inspectors, making sure that businesses know that there are, there are annual federal tax credits and deductions that they can utilize to pay for their CASP inspections and do improvements, um, the loan program, which I talked about, 6% of the business, six businesses that have engaged in it, um, we worked with Opportunity Fund, a micro lender, to set up a loan program. And then the SF Bar Association has set up a program to have an, a 30-minute 30, 30 consultation for $35. So this just is a quick snapshot of that, that information that I've run through and it, and we've provided that information in multiple languages. Um, the small business assessment program, so it first was, uh, its first initial funding came from the mayor, um, targeting, um, five neighborhoods or five business districts in the city, um, primarily where we had business owners where English was not their first language to, um, start with that education and outreach. Um, we contracted with a nonprofit to manage and run the program to hire the CASP inspectors because as a city government, we're subject to sunshine laws and the contract between the CASP or the, the, the CASP report uh, is, is, in, uh, is designed to be a confidential document between the business and the CASP inspector. And so if we owned it, it's no longer a confidential document. So the nonprofit that we contract with is the one that facilitates the um, connection with the CASP inspector. So Northeast Federal Credit Union is the nonprofit that we've contracted with. Um, again, they're in the business they're in the business community, and they, of course, um, definitely specialize in engaging with Chinese-owned small business owners, but have done the workshop and outreach and door-to-door -door, um, knocking um, to other um, businesses. And uh, we've conducted workshops in Spanish um, and um, uh, Vietnamese and Tagalog. So um, how we engage uh, with the business or how businesses get engaged in access to the um, um, subsidized CASP inspections, again, through the workshops, through direct contact with businesses. Um, and now that it is a citywide program, we're also working with our Council of District Merchants, which is an association of um, over 22 merchants associations to assist the, in outreach to businesses in those areas. Um, and then I, I, I noted that there are 344 businesses app that have been able to get the subsidized CASP inspections, though we did, we have had a total of 454 businesses that have applied. 36 were not eligible, either they've already, they're in litigation, um, and for various other reasons, um, and then we currently have 74 on the wait list. Again, um, we probably have more, we have more requests than we, than, um, I think our CASP inspectors can really fulfill and do, at least on an immediate basis. So I went through the business portal just again to highlight that we've put that up front, front and center. Um, 
Also, San Francisco, in terms of taking a look at other ways in which we can do that intersection, uh, we passed um, uh, a regulation um, uh, to have a discussion between the landlord and the tenant or and prospective tenant, uh, what is known now as Chapter 38. It's similar. It has some similarities to SB 1186, um, where it's a disclosure requirement, um, though this law is applicable only in San Francisco. Um, its effective date was January uh, 2013, and it affects all commercial leases under um, that are 7,500 square feet or less. So uh, I'm not going to run through these in great detail, but you know, our definitions that we have a landlord, we have a lease. It's pertaining to um, the notification requirements are pertaining to Title III, the public accommodation, um, and for properties 7,500 square feet or less, um, and that we've defined a small business tenant under the law as a business leasing 7,500 square feet or less. So the requirements are before entering into a lease, either the um, either the the landlord either ensures that the existing public restrooms and ground floor entrances and exits are accessible, um, if readily achievable, or that they provide a written notice to any prospective small business tenant that the property may not meet all construction-related accessibility standards, including standards for public restrooms, ground floor entrance and exits. Um, before entering into or amending a lease and providing written notice, the disability access obligation notice must be provided to the um, small business tenant. Um, and, um, and in it, the major notifications to the tenant um, are that the leasee may be held liable for disability access violations on the property and that the lease must specify who's responsible for making any required disability access improvements. We noticed that that wasn't always spelled out in leases. Uh, if the commercial landlord does not ensure that the um, covered features are accessible, um, then again, the note they, um, they shall also include an additional statement in the obligation notice of please note the property may not currently meet all applicable construction-related accessibility standards, including standards for public restrooms, ground floor entrances, and exits. So trying to put that up front and to businesses so that they're notified um, of what their potential liabilities may be and obligations may be and, and to encourage them to investigate it. Um, that was just a sample of what a notice may look like. Um, additional requirements are that they may they need to make sure that this document is signed. The lease states express terms. I think I just um, who's making the improvements and who pays for them. Um, and I think the last thing is number seven uh, of which we have and is in handouts up here is that the uh, property owner is to hand out a brochure, um, which we have in seven different languages. Um, kind of it's a, it's a, a trifold brochure explaining the laws, explaining some of the key areas, uh, how the flow of a CASP inspection works, and some of the key areas and pitfalls that most businesses experience in not having their business be accessible.
couple things that we've learned, um, not just through the subsidized CASP inspection, but businesses that have done their own inspection, is that um, sometimes the CAS recommendations um, uh, or we've, what we've heard from businesses when they've, in, uh, they've taken their CAS report, now they're launching in and doing the improvements, is how to navigate and interpret what's being reported in relationship to the city requirements. So if they go to start engaging with the city, sometimes the city will say to them, uh, nope, you can't do that recommendation. And so not understanding how come something was recommended, but yet now the city is saying, no, you cannot do that sidewalk encroachment. Um, also interpreting the work of what is readily achievable versus long-term improvements in relationship to the time frame of the lease. Um, but I think so, so where we are now um, and working with um, Commissioner uh, Lerner, is, has been um, doing a good deal of work with the city, with us, is really taking a look at this sort of triad between the building department, our historical preservation, and our Bureau of Street Use and Mapping when it comes to entrances. So the, um, those three entities um, most of the time are engaged when you have to do access improvements that are beyond maybe, um, uh, you know, a portable ramp. So... Um, um, and sometimes uh, it, it, it makes it ch very challenging for a business to be engaging with the three different entities. So we've started meeting, convening, um, and uh, so just to kind of outline for those that may not know that the building code has its building codes, the historical preservation has its requirements, so any business that's over 50 years old is deemed potentially historic. So you can't make any alterate. You can't just make any alterations to a front entrance. Um, it may trigger review with the historical preservation. Um, and then, of course, if you're dealing with small spaces, um, you know there may be some to try to navigate. You know, doing the ac fully accessible entrance may need to consider some sidewalk encroachment. And then, but our Bureau of Street Use and our Bureau of Street Use and Mapping, you know, their mandate is to ensure that then the public sidewalk is fully accessible at, at, as well. And so sidewalk encroachments can, you know, conflict with that mandate. So, um, and then also, you know, we have found that not all CASP inspectors are fully knowledgeable of um, what local building this whole navigating the building code, the Bureau of Street Use and Mapping, and historical preservation. If a business, you know, often businesses hire by price, and so they may not know that they're hiring somebody who may not be fully aware of uh, of San Francisco's unique um, um, city agency requirements. Um, and so... Um, We've, we have seen, not always, but from time to time, that there are reports where recommendations are being done that will just not absolutely be doable in San Francisco um, because the CASP inspector hasn't consulted with the city agents before making their recommendation. 
So here's just a quick sample. This is a dining space, 400 square feet. Total space, uh, the dining space is 400 square feet. The total space is 581. Um, so the Department of Building Inspection um, provided a, we, the Department of Building Inspection has these equivalent accommodation standards that have been approved. Um, and so the business uh, architect, or the business, um, the, there was, a suggestion of doing that accommodation, uh, the equivalent accommodation, but then they, that triggered historical preservation review, historical preservation because it changed the angle of the door would not approve that. Um, and so again, some recommendations were going out and going into doing the, um, sidewalk encroachments. And of course, that provided challenges for that business to be dealing with our Bureau Street use and mapping. So just a kind of quick look is that from changing from the angled door, uh, I don't know if most people can see it and I can't point on it, but it changed it from an angled door to the corner of the building to have it be, I think, is it parallel? So that there would be a power door and the landing would be on the inside so that you could do the power door go up, landing be on the inside. But again, historical preservation that proposed conflicts because it changed the architectural, um, the historical nature of the front entrance. So um, I think moving forward, one of the things that we definitely need to ensure in our subsidized CASP inspection is that we mandate that all the um, CASP inspectors who our nonprofit consults with um, has to consult with all three agencies before they finalize their CASP inspection report. Um, we're very fortunate um, through the, all this discussion and sort of finding out about, you know, some of the difficulties businesses are having triaging the different agencies. Our historical preservation department is developing guidelines to minimize time and review so that either contractors, architects, and or the business can sort of look at what some of the guidelines and things that they require to um, as they're looking at building solutions. And, of course, CASP inspectors can use this as well. Um, and that the Office of Small Business has advocated for a city entity that has expertise and authority to assist businesses, landlords, CASP inspectors to navigate and get to conclusion when city agencies' determinations are in conflict, and, you know, in conflict with each other, that there has to be an entity that helps bring all three entities together to develop a resolution. And we've... Um, have thought about that the Access Appeals Commission could be one entity um, that could possibly do that. So um, with that, I think, you know, um, I'll be happy to take any questions, and I don't know if you would like for me to move back up on the dais and please be able to do that. Yes. Thank you so much, Regina, for that presentation. Uh, we indeed know that San Francisco and, and – in our opinion, at the commission, is has been a leader in the state of California with small businesses in the area of access and, and training. And so, again, why we have um, reached out to you on a number of occasions to share and help us um, to pass this information on and to help because there's so many other or um, well, everyone in the state of California in terms of jurisdictions are receiving the funding to do these type of work. 
we just know that not everyone has been as proactive and in developing the extensive program that like you have and so we are very appreciative and we want to be able to figure out how to get the word out so everyone else can take advantage and learn from what you've already put together so we thank you for that and we look forward to more uh, communications in that area thank you and I just want to say that um, I find it a great partnership um, and also to have the Commission um, as well and the the website and information has continued to grow and expanded and I've utilized your information as well so um, it's it's a great partnership I look look forward to continuing it uh, this Commissioner Dolan if I may also just applaud the efforts thank you very much and I, I see a lot of bounty that you've accomplished here it's fabulous um, <clears throat> One question of, of the novelty of bringing kind of a, a, a central point to have different departments who may have different requirements focus the consumer or the business person with you to, to say, well, look, streets or building or what, whoever the different department, uh, historical, to say you've got conflicting requirements. Come on, let's get together here. I think it's fabulous. You know, and I, I can't tell you the number of frustrations I've had in my career with different conditions where, you know, maybe the sidewalk's 9% cross slope, but I'm only a little segment of the block. And, you know, if I fix mine, there's got to be a transition to meet the neighbors and nobody willing to take that to the rest of the city to say, can't we organize on this? And so I just applaud that effort. Thank you. Next, we have Jesse Torres um, to share. He, just to give a little bit of uh, background about Jesse, in case um, he, he's maybe on the shy side of telling his background personally. But Jesse is, uh, was appointed the Deputy Director of Small Business Advocate in the Governor's Office of Business and Economics Development this April. And, but previously, Jesse has served as a Regional Director at the Los Angeles Small Business Development Center Network in, Long, in the Long Beach uh, City, uh, City College branch and, uh, from 2011 to 2015. And he was also uh, Director of Alumni Relations at Pepperdine University. So he has been working in uh, various locations and been out there for a long time. And so we are very fortunate also, again, to have him join us from Los Angeles to share on, at the dais. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure and honor to be here. And uh, I think I want to start by uh, absolutely also sharing my own uh, opinion that I think uh, the city of San Francisco is leading uh, when it comes to disability access and helping small business owners. I've never, I've never seen anything as comprehensive as this. And I've done a lot of work with small business owners in Los Angeles and also served as the state chair for the California SBDC Council. And uh, so, you know, for me, having been in charge of centers, where a lot of the, uh, the assistance we provide to small business owners is just giving them information. You know, things like checklists, informing them about what they need to know before they go into uh, setting up shop is, uh, is tremendous. I, I applaud you and your work. It's, 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 been, it's actually mind-blowing right now. Um, 
I, I did also want to start with a quick story because uh, I was late to this uh, to the session. I'm going to apologize for missing uh, the majority of the hearing, but uh, one of the reasons why is my, my flight was delayed getting out of LAX to Delta and um, I ended up on a later flight. And uh, as it happens, I actually ended up um, sitting next to uh, a blind woman. And I, I didn't even realize it until I had set down my laptop bag and I almost hit her dog. And, um, and so it was, it was a very interesting uh, experience for me because uh, having the frustrations of a traveler, you know, trying to find a place to sit when the airport terminal is packed or, you know, trying to find a way around uh, at a, a carrier I don't typically use. I'm a Southwest guy. And then I started thinking about her experience. You know, what is that like for her? Or um, even, even things like, uh, I noticed, that, like entertainment. She didn't have entertainment, you know, a book to read. Um, and, and so that was very poignant for me. And then I started thinking about on the Delta side, uh, what I noticed, uh, the care the staff took in, in working with her, uh, the things they did to let her know that, you know, we're about to land and, and, and how to proceed. And I thought they've been trained. You know, the business owner has thought carefully about what they need to do with work with this community, and they've figured out, that there's an advantage to uh, to working uh, with this community and have leveraged that. So you know, just a lot of things going into this uh, into this, uh, this this meeting today. But uh, so I'm here. I represent the, the governor's office of business and economic development. Um, in my role, I serve uh, you know a couple of different hats. One is to be the advocate for small business owners. You know, uh, it's my job to find out. What are your areas of pain? You know, where are you finding success? How can we help elevate best practices across the state? Uh, you know, things like like the programs here in San Francisco. Um, in addition, my office also operates a, a number of different programs. We have a grant program uh, where we give uh, funding support to the California SBDC Small Business Development Center Network uh, to help increase their capacity to do um, consulting and access to capital. Um, and uh, we also oversee the Made in California program through my shop. And in addition, the the, the GoBiz office, as it's called, um, has a number of different programs, anything for helping with international trade work, permitting. Um, if you're trying to find a location for, for your business, we can help with that. We have people that are trained to help with that. And I have a brochure. I left it at the desk if, if anybody's interested and happy to share information by, by email. Um, but really, I think my, my objective here today is to is to to listen and to see, you know, where are there opportunities for us to um, – to increase transparency and information. Uh, like I said, I used to um, run a network where we saw 4,000 small business owners every year. And uh, the common um, issue we saw with our, with our business owners was just they wanted to do good work. They had a hard time figuring out what, how do they proceed. Um, and for me, it's always about providing information, providing transparency, and then providing access to people that can help, you know, uh, whether it's a, uh, you know, a, a CAS inspector or an SBDC consultant. There's a tremendous need for people on the ground that can provide technical assistance, which is the worst word for one-on-one -on -one coaching, individual consulting, uh, you know, just that one-on-one -on -one kind of guidance. Uh, so, you know, you know, just, just please know that, you know, for the state of California, we are deeply invested in our small business community. We want to know what can we do on the state level to help small businesses thrive and to succeed. Um, and uh, for me, you know, this information needs to be shared with the other, the other regions in the state um, and, and so they can understand what, what some of the best practices are. So, Great. I hope this helps. Well, we have created on this uh, time of the agenda to, as that we shared, 
to learn more about what small businesses are interested in and looking for, we have to open up the lines, the phone lines, uh, for any questions or comments, as well as in the audience to uh, to share any any ideas and thoughts that they may have. We have a number of our commissioners who have joined us, um, and we'll be hearing from them shortly. But we definitely um, look forward to any comments or thoughts uh, from those on the phone. Do we have any calls at this time who would like to make any uh, points, or I say our commissioner, um, Hauge is standing. Thank you both for being here today. Um, the question I have is one of the challenges with small businesses is the threat of a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And um, that's real, but I think the difficulty is how do you get small businesses to proactively take steps to solve the problem instead of just saying, Ain't it awful because of all the lawsuits? Absolutely. Well, I think first, government has to um, not make businesses fearful of engaging with them for existing businesses. So, I mean, one of the things that I hear from businesses is that they're afraid to engage with Department of Building Inspection because then there may be other things that they come in that may be layered on that are not related to um, making the access improvements but will be required of them. And so they're just, what's, what's going to be the end amount of money that I'm going to have to spend? So, um, so I know with our Department of Building and Inspection, that's been one of the discussions that we've had, is that when businesses come in to do improvements that are um, accessibility-related, that the department will just stay focused on the accessibility-related um, um, improvements and what's required. Uh, again, I think, you know, one of the things that in beginning to discuss as we started having discussion with businesses that I think it took me two years to really sort of understand that nuance between DBI, historical preservation, and the um, Bureau of Street Use and Mapping. Because when businesses talk about city government, they talk about us as one entity and not different agencies. And so it took me a while to understand that there were things that we were making challenging for businesses to um, achieve compliance when there was interest on their on on their part and um, so um, I think there is the and then there's still as much in the first panel just talked about there's still a lot of the myth of the grandfathering and um, or, you know, I got my initial permits, those were signed off. Um, there is, uh, you know, architects or contractors who really encourage businesses to go and, you know, with, if they're doing, uh, either going with hardship waivers or, um, or not really encouraging businesses to maybe do a little more if they're doing tenant improvements under the valuation threshold. So they're looking for, to some of those folks to provide guidance, and, um, cause they're seen more as the expert more so than the small business. But I think for existing businesses, I mean, there is a little bit of the, um, there is a little bit of, of the head in the sand. There's a little bit of uh, 
there's a little bit of, especially with the entrances and when you're, you have some substantial uh, amount of improvements to make, there's a little frustration that the property owner over, you know, years and years of ownership hasn't taken the responsibility to make those improvements and could do so in between leases. And if you only have a five-year lease and it's a $60,000 improvement, you know, where's, I, I can't, you know, I don't, there's no, I can't afford to do that. So, I don't know, it's a, it's a mixed bag. It's not all one or the other. Um, I think for, for businesses where English isn't your first language, it's difficult to understand all these nuances in English. You know, and as I said, it took me two years to kind of really figure out the whole thing between DBI, you know, Bureau Street Use and Mapping and Historical Preservation. So if, if English isn't your first language, then how much more difficult is it really to sort of understand, you know, what's required? I, I completely agree with, with the comments. And the only thing I would add is, uh, you know, what what I've seen is that there is a, a need to determine where information can be best disseminated. Uh, you know, just one example is, uh, you know, I was I was very surprised that I had a meeting with the um, the LA County Library System, and they had asked for this meeting, and really wasn't quite sure how we were going to be able to connect. And uh, to my to my shock, uh, they told me, you know, we have so many small business owners come into our branches that we've actually had to create economic development manager positions within each of our branches, and they have thousands of small business owners coming because. Uh, it, you know, there is concern that if they go to uh, a city agency or, you know, a federal agency that they might get dinged or, you know, um, you know, there's that fear, whereas the library is a trusted place. So oftentimes it's finding out how do you best disseminate our information uh, is very key, you know, just to, to connecting with small business owners and, and helping kind of shift mindset. Um, I think it's just that, you know, again, I, I point to the role of the technical assistance provider, whether it's a, an SBDC or a Women's Business Center or a SCORE counselor, um, but there is a role for, for individuals or programs that exist, uh, you know, outside of the uh, uh, the government agency kind of role that can act as an intermediary um, uh, where, you know, I've seen firsthand where a, a business owner will will share things, confide with their SBDC consultant that they would be loath to share with, you know, their local representative and uh, where often the SBDC has to play that kind of conduit role or connecting kind of role. So I, I personally think that there's that, that role there that if the, you know, if technical assistance providers are trained about how do you um, how to share information about checklists about how to educate people about about codes that they can serve in that capacity um, and and they can be a, a very effective tool to help shifting mindset for the business owner as well the the concern that the commission has is is one of the things that you both of you have touched upon is dissemination the 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 big challenge uh, Many of us have talked about the chambers, but we recognize that if they're small businesses, they may not even be a part of a chamber. Are you finding the business districts? So, as and you just mentioned something that it was I've never heard of thinking about in terms of dissemination of the libraries, but other opportunities is what we're concerned about because the reality is that many of the uh, the litigations are occurring within small uh, shops with who are 
truly not having English as their first language, and as well as how do we reach them with education because they are the ones who need this information up front before they go into the court system. Can you talk about some more types of uh, outreach uh, that you're conducting for small businesses? I'm happy to take a, a stab. Um, you know, I, I think that's the inherent challenge over in the small business community that every region, every place um, has its own has its own variety of partners and uh, you know focal points of information. And often, I feel that my one of my core jobs is figuring out across the state where are those bright lights. You know, where can you where can you best find avenues to get that information? You know, for some communities. It's neither, you know, the SBDC or the technical assistance provider or the state agency. It says the church, you know, it's the faith-based institution. It's the, uh, um, you know, the community center at a local park. And, you know, it, it, it takes time and effort to determine where are those exact best places to go to. And, you know, a lot of what my team does is try to figure out where are the networks. How do we build that network, of, you know, connectivity so that when a great program gets introduced, we're not doing just, you know, added it onto our website, um, and we have our own California business portal that we're launching, which is, the, you know, I think it takes a lot from the San Francisco portal. Uh, but beyond that, how do we find the right people to get the information out, you know? So it, it's very complicated. Um, very similar uh, approach. Um, and um, I think, you know, we've, uh, especially with the um, – our um, assessment program, our subsidized assessment, our subsidized CASP inspection program, we've um, targeted media that is um, that these communities specifically listen to, read, um, watch. Um, so doing, you know, radio interviews, media, print media, you know, um, articles, things of that sort. We do... Um, I mean, we partner with our chamber, but we also partner with our council of district merchants, and we also partner um, with our business organizations because, um, you know, we want to make sure that it's not just ground floor businesses that are giving consideration to their accessibility requirements, but it could also, you know, also businesses that are in professional services, you know, businesses that may be accessing the second floor in our, our neighborhood commercial districts where these are old buildings where an elevator can't be put in, but what can they do to, uh, to achieve as much access compliance as they possibly can? Regina, you had mentioned that you have a waiting list about 74 uh, for your loan program. Uh, if I understood that correctly, and so there's clearly um, a need for the services. Um, I'm curious to know the types of diversity of types of uh, clients or cust uh, small businesses that have taken advantage. Do you have any statistics on that? Um, I wasn't able to get that from our nonprofit provider. So um, the the 74 businesses that are waiting are waiting are on the wait list for um, a subsidized CASP inspection. 
Um, and as I said, initially when the program first launched, we were really targeting doing um, outreach in the Chinese business community, so business districts that had a high number of Chinese-owned businesses, um, Latino-owned businesses, and then we um, began doing uh, workshops and um, outreach to businesses um, in the Tenderloin where there's a lot of um, Vietnamese and Tagalog-speaking business owners. So that those were some of our primary districts before or business communities before we were, were able to go citywide with the um, additional money. So I, I'm happy to follow up and, and, and get you those statistics. We know that that um, is a particular area of interest to our commission to find out more about uh, the the desire for uh, financial support, mm -hmm. and if the loan uh, process is a, a stronger uh, appeal versus the tax incentive, it's one of the things that was mentioned kind of um, just uh, openly that in one session that if I can't afford it up front, I can't wait for it in a tax uh, credit. Mm -hmm. So those are things that um, we're looking at and we'd like to develop some more discussion on. And and so I know, uh, Jesse, you have a number of programs. And I know that the regional, um, I think we were having one of our region directors here to share. Don't know if he actually made it in. Um, that was talk, would talk about some of this, the actual financial incentives that uh, besides the CAS program, that if if you have any um, knowledge base you want to share about some of those offhand, that'd be great. Just just really quickly, I, I did want to mention that you know the next round of California Capice tax credits, uh, you know the information about that program should be uh, uh, coming up very soon. I believe June 30th is going to be the date. Uh, that's 200 million dollars in tax credits that's available for um, California-based companies. Uh, you know I don't I don't have many details at this point because the next round is just about to be um, um, introduced. But uh, you know I recommend you know come go to our website business.ca.gov. Uh, you'll find the California Competes uh, page, and you'll learn more about um, how the program is structured. Uh, there is essentially a set aside for small businesses, um, and uh, you know, definitely, of course, you know, I'm happy to get my own contact information out. If you have any questions, please contact them through the website or contact me directly. And. Um to add, so we did uh, part. We have a partnership with Opportunity Fund, which is a micro lender, and I think we're a bit disappointed that not more businesses have taken up um, the opportunity to, you know, engage with the loan. Um, but what we have heard from businesses that they haven't done so is because the loan, uh, the interest rate is at eight percent. So I think if we're able to provide, even if it is a loan at a lower um, alone but at a lower interest rate, then we might have more um, businesses um, engaging in, in the request for financial assistance to do not just readily achievable but more substantial improvements. Well, very good. Because definitely that's this particular topic, specifically one of our committees is interested in exploring and bringing in um, more experts in the financial areas to explore uh, what can we do to help businesses because 
if it is, we, we recognize that one, some of it is attitude and, and, and information of understanding that they need to do um, some things that they possibly can do readily achievable. One of your brochures was really a very good illustration of just some things that is simple that doesn't cost much at all for a person to make their businesses more readily achievable on the low end, medium side. So there's some things that we know that's just off with their attitude of changing and recognize that they can do things their own. Um, it's a possibility. And so we do appreciate that information, but also financially finding ways for them too. Do you, did you have another? Okay. Uh, I just want to quickly, you know, um, there are loan programs offered through the U.S. Small Business uh, Administration and that, uh, you know, uh, business owners can go directly to their lender of choice and learn more about those those programs. Often every uh, every major lending institution has uh, SBA loan officers or, you know, uh, business owners can go directly to the uh, SBA website, sba.gov, and find out more about specific programs within their, their district area. Very good. For those of you who uh, participated earlier in our session, there was an example from Building Spectre who, d who required that um, the, a business within the um, uh, tourist area to make their self-accessible. And because they, he said, she gave, he gave the example, they were kind of resistant initially, but Kate wrote, ended up writing letters back to them saying that they were so glad they were because, because their, their candy shop became more accessible, it became a uh, known and actually advertised that this is an accessible building, and that's when they became a more prosperous because of the fact they became known to be accessible. And actually, even on the panel, when the discussion was brought up, one of our panelists said, well, let me know because I need to know. Just in that small little conversation, it, it prompted more people, a person who said, I want to use that, I want to go to that facility. And that's what this is all about. Um, we have one of our commissioners um, in the, on the floor, and we'd like to have her come to the dais, I mean, come to the floor and share. Good afternoon. I'm Celia McGinnis. I'm one of the commissioners. And Ms. Dickendrizi, you and I sat on a panel for the Building Owners and Managers Association uh, regarding what's commonly known in San Francisco as CHU, which was the changes to the administrative code regarding um, landlord-tenant relationships around access. And I'm curious, since you mentioned the fact that small businesses uh, tend to feel it's a little unjust that they're obligated to make capital improvements um, when they have a five-year lease and, and the owner owns the building. Um, I wonder if you can maybe describe for us a little bit about what the changes are that the CHU um, uh, code required and whether you've seen that it's made any difference in any way, whether it's the relationships between landlords and tenants or improving access or just uh, educating tenants about what the status of their building is. Um, so just to reiterate, um, the requirements are that when a property owner is engaging in a prospective lease um, or just about to sign a lease um, and or renewing a lease, they need to uh, inform um, the tenant or prospective tenant as to whether the, the space or the, the, the commercial space that they're going into is either compliant in terms of entrances exits and restrooms um, or may not be compliant 
and then um, who's responsible, and it needs to state in the least, who's responsible for ensuring that any non-compliant um, improvements are to be done. The concept of this was to make that clear so that if a tenant could see that a property owner is saying, I'm, I can't guarantee that my space is, is compliant, um, and that they see that there's a step up, that they assess as to whether, you know, what's going to be the cost of making that entryway accessible. Can they afford it? Can they negotiate doing the tenant improvements with the property owner? Um, and so that was the intent of the legislation. And then the, for the property owner, again, to hand them a brochure to ensure that they kind of understood what are some of the things that they're looking at, because some a lot of business owners are not necessarily sure what they're looking at. Um, I, some of the things that we have seen in or we have heard is actually what's been great from our end is that the, that discussion is happening. And so we've actually had businesses reach out to us saying, all right, we're interested in this space. We don't, we don't really know if it's fully compliant, but how do we navigate this and get this information? So it is, it is, it is, they're, they're giving more thought about the potential um, liabilities of the space that they're going into and what that may mean for their business and whether they can make the place accessible or not. Um, we have um, we have heard of a few where the property owner has given extended free rent for the if the tenant improvements for the entryway is not substantial, um, and. Um, but the, I think the one downside is that we're now seeing that it's written in the lease is that if, if there is a lawsuit and the, you know, the property owner is sued, that then the business is now liable for paying the property owner for the amount that they were sued for. I mean, the business is required. So that was an unintended consequence that we're now seeing in the lease. So, um, um, but we, um, I, I, we don't have any necessarily metrics in terms of leases and what has taken place in terms of the entrances, exits, and restrooms, but it definitely has engaged a conversation and, um, and I think we've, prevented some businesses from signing leases in spaces where there's substantial improvements that need to be made to the entryway, and it's very clear that they don't have the financial means. The property owner has no intention of doing that, of making the improvements, and um, and so have said, okay, this is this is not the right space for us to be going into. So are you saying that one of the unintended consequences has been new indemnity clauses in the lease that the tenant is required to indemnify the landlord for. I don't think that they can indemnify because federal law doesn't, doesn't, I don't know the legal terms, but federal law does not, the property owner is still subject to being sued under federal law. That's right. What they're saying in the lease is that upon being sued, whatever they paid back, whatever they paid in this, you know, being sued in terms of statutory damages and legal fees, that then the business is required to uh, reimburse them for those for that I have another question if, if there's time and it's to you again it's about what you mentioned the um, historical building commission not necessarily approving 
ADA access improvements. And I'm wondering if you have any perspective on that, whether you think, as far as you can tell, that the Historical Building Commission is correctly applying the historical building codes under the ADA, or if you think that that's uh, an avenue where the CCDA could do some education of historical building commissions, or if you can see any other suggestions for ways that we could assist in smoothing out those conflicts. Um, so the, the businesses, in terms of um, the issues, they don't come, they generally do not come before the commission, because the commission is really there for um, landmarking historical buildings. This is really dealing at the staff level. So um, and probably, you know, to maybe be more careful or more um, specific about, it's not that the Historical Preservation Department, they may not approve a proposed, um, like in the example that I provided, that recommendation which meets building code standards doesn't meet their standards, so they won't approve it. So what they do want is for then the business to come back and try to work out a different solution. And so the time, the cost, the architectural, especially for a new business opening up, um, is, you know, you have a $3,000 filing fee. You could have six months before you get through the review process, even just staff that's not coming before the commission. So these are some of the unintended barriers as the department is working to um, meet its mandates to try to preserve the, you know, exterior historical um, architecture of a building. So, um, so that's, so, so our, I'm, I'm pleased that our historical preservation staff, you know, were sensitive to the fact that that, you know, they're trying to figure out ways to sort of shorten that window and to get information out with their checklist to get information out ahead of time of what considerations need to be considered so that maybe an architect um, or a CASP inspector is not just looking at the building code, but also taking a look at what the uh, Historical Preservation Department is considering so that their, the recommendation that they're providing in an accessible interest includes both those things up front. I think that sounds like a great idea, and I hear also what you're saying about expedited review. And I'm wondering if you know, and there are there is a set of standards for historical, for making access in historical buildings, and there's criteria. And I, I don't know if you know whether the historical preservation staff is following those guidelines or has its own set of guidelines that it follows when considering access um, alterations. I can't, I can't. I don't. I don't know if there okay. if there's two sets of guidelines. I can't speak to that. But okay. um, yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Time. Thank you, Commissioner McGinnis. We just want to acknowledge real quickly uh, two uh, special guests that uh, enter the room. One is Mark Quinn, the U.S. Director of Small Business Administration. Thank you for coming. And then also we we see uh, Taryn, uh, yes, uh, Ta 
Tarion, yes, thank you. The San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, Director of Strategic Relations. Again, we thank you. We also had the Honorable um, Tom Amiano um, in, and I think he stepped out for just a moment, and we just wanted to acknowledge that he was in, in attendance and hopefully will be here uh, back shortly. We um, thank you all for coming and sharing. And if there was anything that you had wanted to share to um, this setting, we would appreciate uh, this moment. If you could, you could come forward and share the things you're doing and, and what you're working on, specifically in the area of small businesses and um, information on access for them. And I'll do you, if you like. Hey, Taryn Taddeo with the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. And um, right now we are just trying to improve our outreach to our small business um, partners by conducting meetings and um, hosting forums where we can provide insight into these issues. So we try and pull together our partners um, once or twice monthly to have discussions about exactly access and information along what businesses need to know. And if they don't know it, what partners they can access and what are the best avenues for providing in, um gaining additional information to make their lives easier. So we we view ourselves as a resource um, and as a convener so that we can both relay the information and um, be a center for getting additional information as needed and put them in contact with additional partners. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. My name is Mark Quinn. I'm the District Director of the Small Business Administration, and we assist a number of small businesses in San Francisco on a variety of levels. Um, part of it, as Taryn mentioned also, is giving them understanding of where to find access to information about uh, issues around handicapped accessibility and other accessibility issues. The other part of it, because we spend a lot of time training people on starting businesses and counseling on businesses, is really educating them on how it is that they need to take, take the steps they need to take to be able to be in compliance with both federal and city uh, ordinances around and law around the issues. The other thing that SBA does, of course, is we guarantee a lot of loans. So as part of businesses who are looking when they have impacts, financial impacts, in trying to make their buildings accessible, uh, SBA guarantees loans that, that can be used for that purpose if that is part of it. And certainly any businesses that are building new facilities or moving into a new location, uh, that, uh, that part of the cost of that is going to make their buildings accessible, those are something that SBA will finance as part of the deals. So uh, we try to make sure that we both give people good information, as Taryn said, but also give them access to the financing they may need to do that. Well, thank you very much for that overview. If there's a, uh, this is Commissioner Doldum again, if there is some sort of summary or handout, uh, we would welcome something like that so we can reference it in our website materials. That would be fabulous. Certainly. We'll thank you. That. And I, we actually love when we hear the word partnership from our guests and those we're engaged in because that's, exactly what the strength and the ability to make our commission successful is, is truly partnerships. And as I mentioned earlier, as we transition into this topic of small business, we have a survey, an informational tool that we'd like to get to our small businesses, and we would love to um, look to you, our partners, our potential partners, to be able to, to disseminate 
this ser- this informational gathering so we can create this tool for them. And we hope that with that information we can develop a strong tool, as we have done with the checklist, um, to be able to provide to our consumers. With um, that, we wanted to, at this point, um, move into the area of what the second part of our, or, or the third part of our uh, gathering today is regarding our celebration of, of the 25th anniversary. And with that, in leading our uh, celebration, I would like to have our commissioner, uh, Scott Hauge. Um He has served as our um, previous vice chair for the commission and has done a tremendous area in terms of small business leadership, and we'd like for him to help us uh, move forward in the area of our pledge. Thank you, <clears throat> and welcome all today. Um, on July 26, uh, 1990, President George H.W. Bush signed the American Disability Act, which ensures the civil rights that better? Ensures the civil rights of people with disabilities. The legislation was clear and imposed a national mandate to eliminate discrimination against those with disabilities. On the 26th of this month, uh, or excuse me, the 26th of July, we'll celebrate that 25th anniversary. The ADA um, has broadened the opportunities for people with disabilities by reducing the barriers um, and also um, eliminating or changing attitudes towards those with disabilities. We think ultimately the goal is <clears throat> that the disabled community will have full participation in all the community activities. Um, this won't happen um, if we stop here, we must continue to look for the full promise of the ADA and continue our efforts to um, implement the full goals of the ADA. So with that, <clears throat> at this time, I would like to uh, invite the commissioners of the CCDA that are here in City Hall to step forward and um, also the people, the commissioners that are on the phone to uh, take part in our pledge. Uh, the California Commission on Disabled Access would like to hereby reaffirm its continued work towards full ADA compliance through the work of our nine strategic goals. Um, I'm going to read the nine goals, and then what I'd like is the commissioners and staff to say, um, I do so pledge. Number one, advocate for access uh, curricula for all school programs. Increase disability access awareness. I do so pledge. 
create training programs for targeted constituencies. I do so pledge. Create and identify revenue streams to fund access needs. I do so pledge. Create financial and other incentives for access programs. I do, I do so pledge. Thank you. Explore the development of a state of level Americans with Disabilities Act access office. I do so pledge. Do so pledge. Advocate to hold authorities having jurisdiction accountable for the built environment, both public and private, to avoid passive noncompliances for architecture, architectural and program access. Do so I do pledge. pledge. I do so pledge. Maintain data on status of access compliance. I do so pledge. I do so pledge. Expand methods of identification, obligation, and enforcement of barrier removal in the built environment. Thank you. I ask now for all the government officials, building professionals, business professionals, and disability disabilities advocates to join the commission in our reaffirmation of CCDA mission. The mission of the commission is to promote disability access in California through dialogue and collaboration with, stake with stakeholders including including Angela help me Your page got so up include all including all oh, on government ah, <laughs> including all but not limited to the disability and business communities and all levels of government you all can join us including those on the dais and in the audience if you chose we ask you to join us today. I also pledge I also, I also pledge. pledge thank you very much Well, at this time, we have, uh, thank you, Commissioner Hauge. That was uh, wonderful. It is indeed our, uh, our desire to, to work fully um, throughout the years. We have a three to five year goal in this, in this uh, strategic plan, but we know it requires all of us to work together. And truly, as been said, this 25th anniversary should be the fuel to keep us going forward, to push us even stronger, to do the work that was called to us to do 25 years ago. And we should feel ourselves obligated to work harder because we're standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. So I thank you all for coming. And at this, is there a commissioner on the line? I, didn't, I heard a couple commissioners. Uh, this is Commissioner Parabonia. Commissioner Parabonia. And this is Commissioner Yu. Excellent. Any other commissioners? We thank those commissioners here. Um, we, the staff, we work um, and we, we work for you, and we serve um, the state of California, and we thank you all. We have a reception uh, scheduled for um, right after this uh, session across the hall in, in room 421. 421. We welcome all to attend and to participate. We thank you so much for coming. This is truly a historical day for us in a lot of ways, and we, and we celebrate that everyone came out today. Again, we want to thank the Commission on uh, San Francisco's Commission on Access Appeal Board for welcoming us and letting us hear Rick came. <laughs> He's okay. <laughs> He's been working in a lot of ways. 
His boss, of course, is, uh, has been working with us uh, closely, Tom Huey. And, uh, of course, our, our, our hostess for the reception is the Small Business um, Commission and uh, led by, of course, our director, Regina. Uh, um, I always want to say. Dick and Dreezy. I always want to switch it for some reason. So we thank you for hosting the reception and we thank you all for attending and coming. Uh, it is a great day. And, and Ernie, you have been working with us on, on the education committee as well as so many projects with us. And so we thank you for opening up and, and, and submitting your uh, meeting time for us to celebrate today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. So we hope for everyone to join us across the hall. Good to see you.